Okay. Don't break the glass. Oh. That was okay. Okay. It's better than the first one. Oh. Episode 22. Yeah. Yeah. I don't keep track of them. So, like, most of the time I don't realize what episode it is until I'm posting about it. Oops. And then you have to go back and answer and be like, oh, shit. Shit, which one is it? Yeah, that's literally it. That's the life. Well, we're coming up on our penultimate week of Hollywood horrors and stories and... Yeah. I forgot how good this was. <laughs> Sammy's got her favorite wine. I've mm-hmm. got my favorite wine. They're different wines. Yep. She hates mine. And she hates mine. I don't hate yours. I like yours. Oh. I just also get a headache after it because there's so much sugar. I'm going to have to edit that out. Leave it in for the ASMR folks. Ew. Who wants AMSR? <laughs> AMSR. AMSR. <laughs> People are into that shit. Of you sipping a drink? Oh, yeah. Ew. There's People like love listening to people eat. They're like, that's the We've weirdest thing. We've talked about this before, and I've made those chewing mouth noises <sighs> before. Well, people are into some weird things. Don't shame. I'm not shaming. I just think it's gross. <laughs> I can't wait to listen to this when I'm editing and hear you just... <laughs> we, like, yell at the dogs for their mouth noises. Okay, there's a difference. <laughs> Do you think there's some ASMR people who like that? Oh, 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 Like, totally. they'd be totally into our dogs, like, spaghetti noises? We should start an OnlyFans for it. <laughs> oh my god, I hate that idea. We're doing it. No, we're not. You guys can find us on. Absolutely not. <laughs> Come on. That's gross. It's not gross. It's sexualizing our dog's mouth noises. No, 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 no. <laughs> OnlyFans isn't just for sexual content. It's for creators, just like TikTok. So just because people are using it for whatever they want, which may or may not be sexual pleasure, oh is up God. to them. That's not I art. We're this. just doing this for the sounds, not for anything else. If you want... Never mind. I'm not going to keep going down this rabbit hole. <laughs> It's One sip fine. of wine and she's down. <laughs> Whatever. <laughs> um, how was your week? Um, it was good. I worked. It's kind of a weird work week, but that's okay. Um, yeah. I don't okay. really have anything else to add. <laughs> I know. I was thinking. It was just like it's my weeks have been busy, but it's nothing really. They're busy, new. but the same kind of busy. Yeah. So there's nothing that really stands out. Yeah. 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 What about you? It's good. It's worked. Love it. Worked and we checked out a wedding venue. We did. It was pretty cool. Super cool. Fingers crossed because we liked it a lot. And that was it. That was it. Um, if you guys don't know, we're getting married. <laughs> because on the very first episode, Macy said, we date sometimes. And we don't just date sometimes, we are engaged sometimes. And then, well, I'm sure when we're married, we'll be married sometimes. On occasion. On occasion. So, well, just so you guys know, currently I we are, in, why, are sometimes engaged. <laughs> what are you saying? What did you say? I said we're engaged on days that end with why. Oh, oh that's cute. <laughs> You're stuck with me. Um... So yeah, you want to get this show on the road? Yes, I do. You first? I am first, and I feel like the cats are going to go crazy, but we're just going to pretend like they're not. Or edit it out. 
Um, so this is, yeah, week three of our Hollywood adventures. And today we're talking about some pretty big stories. Both of them are covered by the same TV series, which is very interesting. Yep. Which wasn't planned when we first were, like, thinking about it, and we're like, oh, it's even cooler because they're connected. Right. But it's fine. I am talking about um, Andrew Cunanan, and for those who don't know, he killed six people, one of whom was Gianni Versace, the fashion designer, which is what connects it to Hollywood, if you can't guess. Anyways... Andrew Philip Cunanan was born August 31st, 1969. Super side note. Um, Macy and I went back and forth because I didn't really want to talk about his past too much. Because I don't want to glorify him because he killed a lot of people and had his own issues. But she made a fair point by saying, like, it's important to know what drove him to do these things. And I was talking to another friend earlier today that said, like, it's also important to know just in case somebody's in a similar situation, they can see these warning signs. When you see the red flags, you can actually yeah. do something about it. Yeah, because I always feel bad talking about, like, a personal life of somebody who, like, did awful things. But at the same time, I just hope that you guys realize we're doing this to, like, red flags, to see if they're there. Also, like... To know that this type of personality disorder exists mm-hmm. and what it can, like, how it can damage like, relationships, and then go even further. Right. Like, we saw that with Aaron Hernandez. And, like, basically every single person we've talked about had Mm -hmm. some kind of something going on. I mean, we all have mental illness, let's be honest, but to some extent it really messes with you and it can cause you to do some really awful things such as these. So I just wanted to say that real quick. I had con- I always have conflict doing that, but, like, especially this one I had some conflict, but... Um, I hope that I also give enough life of his victims to kind of try to, you know, honor them as well, because that's the most important part of this. Anyways, so he was born in the date that I said, in National City, California. Some sources said that he was born in San Diego, um, which National City, according to a map, is just south of San Diego. So I'm wondering if it's like a suburb and people just kind of lump like it all those, together. Yeah. yeah, it's like, oh, I'm from Denver, but are you from like this part of Denver or this part of yeah, Denver? Really it's like you're from Littleton, really right. you're from North Glen. Or like, Aurora, you know, yeah. like Glendale. <laughs> yeah, so. Um, Denver. <laughs> so I'm uh, thinking it's more accurately National City, but I just wanted to throw that out there in case somebody was like, no, he's born in San Diego. Um, so his parents were Modesto. He goes by Pete Cunanan and Mary Ann, I'm going to pronounce this incorrectly. She's Italian, but so I'm really going to mess this up. She, Shalaki? Shalaki. Do you want to look at it? Yeah. Shalaki? Sounds right. Cool. Um, Pete. So, oh, that might be more. I'm not Italian. I'll so tell you for my one I semester apologize. of Italian, but I have no idea. <laughs> <laughs> Accurate. Okay. Um, Pete served in the military, and after leaving the Navy, he found work as a stockbroker. Andrew, as he was growing up, probably because his father was in the military for a while, he went to various schools. It's noted that when he was at school, he was very talkative, so much that as a teenager, he gained the reputation of being a compulsive liar. So we see that as a very big pattern in his life mm-hmm. and very, like, manipulative. 
So most of his lies were about his family and like his personal life. So he really wouldn't lie about, I mean, that's what everybody lies about is like their personal lives and stuff, but he would try to keep it like very much himself. He wouldn't be like, oh, well, maybe he was kind of a gossip. Maybe I'm just putting words in people's mouths, but that's what I found that he just mainly lied about his family and personal life. He would like exaggerate things, be like, oh, well, my dad's this extravagant person in the military when like he was just some other dude in the military. Um, So... In high school, Andrew came out as being gay, uh, and he didn't do that to his parents, though. So that's kind of uh, upsetting that he just kind of... Everybody else knew, except for his family. Yeah. But, I mean, again, like, everybody works through things in their own way. If that's how he felt his path in life was, then so be it. Everyone does things differently. But he didn't seem to, like, hide it, so that's also what was kind of, like weird if you're not hiding it whatever um but also he in high school admitted to having relationships with rich old older men so he started that at a very young age as well uh also during in school andrew apparently had an iq of 147 yes which we talked about previously was it last no it was the black dahlia episode um like Basically, to be considered a genius, you have to have an IQ of over 140. So, I mean, he's barely over that, but, like, holy shit, like, he's over that. (laughs) That's fucking high. Um, So then in 1987, when Andrew graduated high school, he went to attend college at the University of California in San Diego. Um, He was majoring in American history. That next year, Pete, his father, apparently was doing, like, shady stockbroker shit, and eventually he just abandoned his family and left the country to go to the Philippines uh, because he was avoiding being arrested for embezzlement allegations slash charges. I heard both. I'm pretty sure they were charges if he's fleeing the fucking country. Um, yeah, wasn't it, like, the FBI? So that's... It was like, a pretty big deal. crimes are generally yeah. dealt with by... The FBI. Yeah. yeah, so he, like, had to leave the country. He couldn't just leave the state and avoid that jurisdiction. He, like... Just bailed. Yeah, he just left. So, um, his mother now was a single mom, even though Andrew was considered an adult at this time. But that was also around the same time when Andrew started to get a little bit more adventurous, which isn't a bad thing. But he was being so, um, I wouldn't say careless... He didn't tell his mom he was gay still, and so he didn't seem to hide it, and so she found out, apparently, and was very upset that he was going to these locations that were geared towards gay people, like bars and clubs and stuff like that. Um, She was deeply religious, and when she confronted him about it, he ended up pushing her against the wall and dislocating her shoulder. Yikes. Yeah. So it's like... It's a clue. It's a clue to his physical aspects, and also you can't, like, hide something from somebody and expect them not to be upset with you, regardless if she was upset that he was gay because of her religion. Right. But I think, personally, if I was a parent, I'd be more upset with the fact that, like, you didn't feel comfortable enough coming to me, but maybe that's my fault. I should have been a better parent. I don't know the situation again, but... And either way, the correct response to that anger is not to... (laughs) Not to physically abuse somebody. Yeah. Yeah. So that's the first um, red flag that I could find that he was kind of already, like, not in a good mindset. 
Yeah. Huh? Easy to set up. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, totally. So, I don't know if his mom pressed charges or anything. I imagine not, because most of the time, parents don't do that. They just kind of, I feel like, beat themselves up for it. But then, in the next year, 1989, Andrew dropped out of college, and he ended up moving to the Castro District of San Francisco, which also happened to be, like, the hub of the LGBTQ plus community. So it was like he was surrounded by people that he was comfortable with because it was like the same lifestyle, the same understanding, same mindset. Who wouldn't want to be in the same area of people that... Right. You know? Yeah. So when he moved there, he moved in with his best friend from like middle school, high school. Her name was Lizzie Cody, I believe. um, And her boyfriend, Phil Merrill. They had been friends for so long, and so it was all fine and dandy. And then, apparently, by the time Andrew was 21, he apparently spoke seven languages. Holy shit. He's either lying, or, like, (laughs) that IQ is just... Right. (laughs) Yeah. So, during the next few years, Andrew kept up with his successes with meeting up with older men. While he's with them, he apparently would create violent porn with them. I don't know if it was consensual or not. Who knows? Only the two people that were involved. Either way, I feel like that's also some red flags with, like, his violent tendencies. Oh, yeah. I mean, I I understand people have kinks and, like, stuff like that, but, like, when you get to the point where, like, you're already, like... a pattern and you like it, like, like, you resort to that when you're angry and then you also like it during sex, like... That's, I think it's kind of scary to think about if it's not handled in, like, a good manner, yeah. safe words, you know? Um, but I guess he would, like, rotate through his wealthy companions or just keep getting new ones because, I mean, back then, this was, like, late 1980s, early 1990s, like, nobody was doing this kind of thing, you know? Not, and, like, not admitting it. Yeah, that's true, especially that. And Andrew was very, 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 very open about what he was doing. Which, I mean... Probably straight up advertised it. Oh, totally. Since he was, like, going around and... Yeah. Basically being hired. Yeah. To... Yeah, literally. So, regardless, like, this is how he paid his rent, and this is how he paid for, like, his food, his clothing, like, anything. He right. Would, that's how he got his cars, is he would have these men buy him cars for him and stuff like that. So, like, he knew how to play the system, and, like, honestly, if I had the balls to do it, oh, man, I'd do it in a heartbeat. Damn. But I don't think I... Okay. Here's the thing. That's just not my thing. I'm, I'm not into older men like that. Sure. Um. Anyways, if you do that, like, good for you. Where was I? I'm, I'm super derailing. <laughs> um. Regardless, he would use this, this extra source of income to, like, travel around. He would go to, like, Arizona and Miami and San Diego. He would just go places and just, like, party, have fun, meet new people, meet new companions to give him money (laughs) you know he had a very good system going for him totally um so at this time it is also believed that he was using drugs such as opioids coke meth and marijuana he also went by several aliases depending on where he was so like if he was in san diego huh it's quite the mix right yeah it's weird to meet people now that like, they generally hone in on one, one. type of high mm-hmm. that they like. I honestly think that he was just so obsessed with, like, fitting in with people that he would go to a party yeah. and they'd be like, oh, do you want some Coke? He'd be like, oh, yeah, I'd love yeah, some Coke. Yeah, I love Coke. And I then, do Coke all the time. Right, yeah, yeah. And then the next party, they'd be like, oh, dude, I have some meth. You want some meth? He'd be like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Totally, that, totally, I love totally. that shit. That's, you know, <laughs> that seems like the kind of thing that he would do oh, just Lord. to, like, fit in. 
So he went by several aliases, and some of them, like, depending on where he was, that's what he would use, just to kind of, like, I don't know, make it harder to I feel like he liked him. lying. He did. I think he got off on, like, selling a lie. Yeah. Yeah. And then I think also maybe it was because, like, a lot of the wealthier men that he was talk with... Talked to each other. Talked to each other. Totally. So they would... They'd be like, oh, yeah, Andrew De, Andrew De Silva. And they'd be like, oh, yeah, I'm with um, Andy Cummings. Yeah. You know, he'd come up with all these names. One of them was uh, Drew Cunningham and Kurt Matthew Damaris. Like, super random names, but yeah. he, like, kept these names depending on where he was and who he was with. Right. So also another way to lie and it's crazy how he kept up with all these lies for so long anyways in october of 1990 while he was in san francisco andrew claims to have met the star of the show the ever so famous gianni versace the fact that they met however is denied by gianni's family but it is a fact that Gianni was in San Francisco at this time that he claims to have met him. So it's totally possible. Totally possible. Hard to know if you can't actually ask Gianni himself. Exactly. And also the fact that Andrew was such a compulsive liar. Here's something else that I learned is that he was very keen to know who had power, who had wealth, who could he name drop to get whatever he wanted? So super if, smart. Super very fucking smart. smart. Very smart. Very manipulative. He knew how to, like, play his pieces right. So he knew that Gianni was in town during that time. And he knew, like, if he name dropped him, people would be like, oh my god, you know Versace? Um, but yeah, anyways, Gianni was there because of the... There's a San Francisco opera production of Richard Strauss's... Um, I'm going to pronounce this incorrectly. I'm so sorry. Capric... Capriccio? Capriccio. Capriccio! <laughs> um, uh, and they were using his designs for, for costumes. So he was there to like do fittings and make sure everything's perfect right before it came out. So there are, or is there, I'm, there's a lot of witness testimonies. So I think this particular incident, there was one witness that came forward um, stating that he remembers seeing Andrew with Gianni the mm. night of the 21st of October. This is according to a Vanity Fair article. Um, but the interaction basically went as they were at, like, this club or something, and Gianni sees Andrew, and he's like, I know you. And he's, like, pointing at Andrew, and he's just like, Lago di Como, no? Lake Como. Yeah, so he's referring to Lake Como in Italy, yeah. which is where his home is. Right. So I think he was just, like, saying, oh, like, did we meet there? Right. So I have no idea if Andrew went to Italy or not. I wouldn't put it past him with all the money Probably he was getting. about it and was like, yeah. Yeah, no, he totally says, <laughs> he, according to this witness, he says, thank you for remembering, Signor Versace. <laughs> yeah. So, of Yeek. course. And so, I don't, I don't even know. But, I mean, Andrew is kind of a pretty... Unique face, I think. I haven't seen anybody like that looks like him, but except Darren Chris. Oh, that's true. <laughs> except for the guy, him. The, the guy who plays him. <laughs> but um, there's another interaction remembered by another person, where um, and this was a close friend of Andrew, who is a research analyst. His name is Doug Stubblefield. So Doug recounts an event where he was walking on Market Street in San Francisco on the way to a gay club, when a big white car with a chauffeur pulls up alongside him and. Inside the car was Gianni, Andrew, and another San Francisco socialite, Harry DeWalt. Um, DeWalt? 
Yeah, that makes more wall? sense. Okay. I was pot. I was just the walls. Like the tools. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The wall. But well, no, it's W I L D T. Dewilt. Dewilt. Sorry, Harry. Um. <laughs> so Doug, in his own words, this is again according to Vanity Fair, says, "Quote: Andrew came out, and we had a conversation on the side of the street. It was very Andrew to do that. Have the car pull over, and I feel like that's another thing to be like, oh, there's my friend. I know him. Pull over so he can like boast about like, oh, I'm in the car with these big important people, and like, look at me. Anyways." However, when Vanity Fair reaches out to Harry to try to confirm this interaction, he says, quote, I categorically deny Mr. Versace and Mr. Kunanen and I were in the same car. I have never had the pleasure or displeasure of meeting Mr. Kunanen. So. Sold out. Yeah. But again, maybe he's lying. I don't know. Everyone could be lying. Because at this time, I think the Vanity Fair article, this was just before um, the big crimes and everything like that. So, like, he had just started, like, being on the most wanted list. So he was, like, halfway through his spree when everyone was, like, getting interviewed by Vanity Fair. And they were like, oh, yeah, no, I don't know him. Probably to save face. But... Yeah. You, that's the point where you don't want to know him. Right, right, right. So then, in late 1992 or early 1993, Andrew meets a man by the name of Jeffrey Trail. Jeffrey, I'm going to call him Jeff, was in the Navy, so he was stationed in San Diego around the same time Andrew was frequenting that area, and it's reported during this time that Jeff was struggling with his sexuality, being in the military, and being gay, especially back then. It was probably super hard, because... Don't ask, don't tell. Yeah, which that came out... Right. Yeah. <laughs> the Clinton's uh, don't ask, don't tell policy didn't go into effect until 1994. So prior to that, like, you straight up get kicked out. Yeah. So he was super, like, repressing that. Famously, Jeff anonymously took part of a 48 hours interview where he discussed that exact situation of being in the military and having to hide it and all this shit. Anyways, Jeff seemed to be in awe, probably because he had to repress how he felt, um, of how Andrew handled his sexuality without shame and found courage and in that type of confidence. Andrew reportedly helped Jeff find male suitors. People a lot of the times were like, oh, Jeff and Andrew had a relationship, but everything that I found was like, no, like, Andrew was really yeah. just... Just a friend. Being a friend and probably just used that to try to... Yeah manipulate some other situation. Yeah. Be like, oh, well, I did all this for you. Yep. Yeah, but... Anyways, there are also claims that Jeff and Andrew, like I just said, had a sexual relationship, but nothing's been confirmed, and then Jeff's family adamantly denies this, as well as friends who know both of them, so... Andrew was so, like, out there with his life. You would have known. Yeah. Um, But a lot of Jeff's friends very openly disliked Andrew because he was a jerk and would lie all the time. Surprise. Um, So much so that he, there was an example of, like, he would buy um, brand name shoes. I think they were um, Fergamo or something like that. I can't pronounce it right because I can't roll my R's. But um, Fergamo. That sounds better. (laughs) Just give it an Italian accent. Everything sounds better. He would use these shoes and he would give it to people and be like, oh, like, pretend like I'm getting these for you for your birthday because it would be like a birthday party and they'd open it and be like, oh, yeah, thanks. And, but I think it was like the same pair of shoes that he was like giving around and they would have to like give it back. It's like That's weird. weird. Super weird. Um, but they show that in um, American Crime Story where he's like giving them all these name brand things. So I think that was their They don't like, really go into that part that it's a f- 
that it's a lie. Yeah. I think they make it look like he's actually like right giving it to them. Mm-hmm. So maybe I misunderstood for my research, but I don't know. Again, it's a, it's whatever. Anyways, people did also recognize that Andrew would end up mimicking Jeff. So if Jeff got a haircut or like a new hat or like would change the style of his clothing or like would get a goatee, Andrew a couple days or like a week later would do the same exact thing. Hmm. Yeah, and so it even got weirder when. Jeff moved to San Francisco from San Diego, like, Andrew also was like, oh, I'm totally gonna move in the same area of San Francisco. And also, with Jeff being in the military, he would go shooting, and Andrew was like, oh, I wanna go shooting. And so then they would go shooting together, and so Andrew very quickly learned his way around a gun. Which may or may not be uh, foreshadowing. So, in December of 1995, a few years after he supposedly met Gianni Versace, Andrew meets another man by the name of David Madsen. Um, Madsen, I'm going to call him David. I don't know why I called him by his last name. He was an architect that lived in Minneapolis. And the two met at a bar in San Francisco while David was visiting. Just, like, having fun, I guess. Who doesn't want to go to San Francisco and have fun? Friends of David described him as a charismatic man and a peacemaker, so probably very personable. They apparently, uh, David and Andrew had a long-distance relationship. Andrew was still living in San Francisco, and David was still in Minneapolis, but only for David to break it off in the spring of 1996, so like six months-ish, because he felt like something was shady or weird going on with Andrew. Yeah. It, it was. Yeah, it was weird. And, but Andrew would always tell people, like, David was the love of his life. Um, So I doubt that David, unfortunately, knew he was in for, like, the unfortunate ride of his life. In the fall of 1996, Andrew apparently broke up with one of the wealthy men that was supporting him because he was, quote, too cheap. This dude literally bought him a car and gave him a salary of, like, $2,000 a month. And $2,000 in, like, 1996... Is, I a imagine lot more a than lot more. Now. Yeah, exactly. Other sources that I read claim that the wealthy man cut him off. So I don't know which happened. Either way, he didn't know. He he did no longer. <laughs> he no longer had. He did the, no longer have relationship. He no relationship and no money that was coming in. Um. So he also started to drink excessively around this time. I'm pretty sure he was also still using drugs. So the mixtures don't usually like to pan out very well. Nope. Um, so, and near this time as well, Andrew maxed out all the credit cards that he had, and he started selling drugs to try to make ends meet, or maybe he just did it to do it. I don't know. Yeah. Like, I found conflicting information with that, too. Coincidentally, Jeff, the Navy dude, moved to Minneapolis in late 1996. So, David and Jeff were now in the same city, and Andrew got kind of jealous because then they started to become friends because they had a mutual They were in the friend. same area. Yeah, they were in the same area. Yeah. They both knew Andrew. Why not? Um, Jeff, like David, had distanced himself from Andrew around this time, too, because he was being a little extreme. And this didn't stop Andrew. He would still go to Minneapolis unannounced and just, like, bother Jeff. He would just, like, show up at his door and be like, hi, what's up? And Jeff would be like... Hi, call first. Yeah, Please, what the like, fuck? Give like, I me a heads up. That'd yeah, I have to work this week. Like, what the hell? Yeah. Ugh, so annoying. But are we surprised? Again, Jeff and David would become friends, which might have been why David broke up with him because 
Jeff had apparently warned David about Andrew and how you can't believe a word he says. Oh, they both probably talked and were like, oh my god, he said that to me too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's um, how you find out somebody's lying to you. Oh, yeah, and Jeff also, like, made a point to say to David, like, he that Andrew will say anything to get just, like, get a reaction. Like, he liked that attention of people being like, oh my gosh, really? Yeah. Yeah. When Andrew was having the financial problems, he apparently told his friends that he needed to go to Minneapolis and settle some business with Jeff. Jeff was a district manager for a propane delivery company, so, like, whatever business he had to solve with him was, like, nothing to really do with business. Sure. If we all thought that, then you're wrong. Either way, <laughs> Andrew didn't even have the money to afford a plane ticket. He had to ex- ask for an extension on his credit cards to get the plane ticket to go to Yikes. Minneapolis. So I think his wealthy contacts were starting to also fizzle out at this Wayne. point. Yeah. Uh, they probably were also getting crazy or frustrated with his exotic behavior, especially in bed. Like, older men, I can't imagine, can take restraints for a long amount of time and get right. beat up. Like- Get beat up, yeah. duct taped, yeah, weird shit. Yeah, and all of his friends were like, they would say like, he's in some weird shit, like weird, weird. Like there's S and M, and then there's weird. <laughs> <laughs> You're welcome. Um, <laughs> so he had told Jeff and David that he was coming, so at least he warned them. And Jeff had apparently told his sister. He was not looking forward to the visit. He didn't want... He didn't think Andrew was going to stay in Minneapolis for very long, and he was just hoping that he would be back in California in no time like every other trip. But Jeff also told a former roommate about a week before Andrew was going to visit that he had a huge falling out with Andrew and says, quote, I made a lot of enemies this weekend. I've got to get out of here. They're going to kill me. End quote. Yeah. If that's... That's alarming. Super alarming. Like, usually if you think someone's gonna kill you... Yeah. That's not good. That's not good. And you're still gonna have him come see you? That's not good. Nope. No, 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 no. Also, from another one of Jess' friends, according to Harper's Bazaar, he recalls a conversation that he had with Jeff about a month before Andrew went to Minneapolis. And the friend's name is Rick Allen. And I'm gonna try to say this as much as it makes sense. The way he talks, it's just kind of confusing. So, Jeff tells Rick that Andrew talked to him about doing security work for his import-export business. And then Rick had said, I don't even know what you're talking about. And Jeff was just like, drugs. He's talking about drugs. Like He wants me to be part of this drug business he's got going on. And he said, it's not something I tell anybody about. And then Rick said to Jeff, what did you tell him? Meaning, like, what did you tell Andrew? And Jeff apparently told Andrew, fuck you. (laughs) Yeah. And I also read another source that said that Jeff worked for California Highway Patrol. And he had to quit his job because he helped smuggle drugs into America for Andrew. Hmm. But I found that in one source, and I can't remember if it was Harper's Bazaar or, like, just some random source that I have. I'm trying to think which ones I have. Harper's Bazaar, Vanity Fair, um, it might have been Murderpedia. Hmm. But either way, I was just like, I feel like if that was the case, I would have found it in more than one source. Yeah. But 
I don't think Jeff was very keen on being in this drug business because he was in the Navy and if he was a patrolman, like... He'd upstanding. Yeah. Reports said that he didn't even like marijuana. So, yeah. like, he's kind of like... I wouldn't say anti-drugs because I don't know what his viewpoints Just are. Just not into it. But it was not for him. Yeah. So I can't imagine he would be, like, balls deep and ready to go sell drugs, you know? <laughs> Another recount of Andrew's behavior comes from an old roommate named Eric Greenman, who told a journalist from Vanity Fair, quote, he grabbed me around the neck so hard he was choking me by his grip, end quote. And this was because Eric showed Andrew a flyer of an S&M party that Andrew, or I'm sorry, Andrew showed Eric this flyer, and Andrew was wanting to attend it, and somehow they started to, like, argue. I wonder if Eric was just like, look, dude, you gotta calm down, like... I'm glad this is your thing, but, like, this is, like, all that you talk about, so, like, let's just stop. Eric was reflecting back on the time, and he thinks that maybe Andrew was, like, hunting? Like, trying to find the thrill of, like, scaring people and, like, torturing them and then, like, working towards killing them, especially since he, like, started choking him out. He got a little freaked out by that behavior, so... After finally purchasing the plane ticket, we're back to Andrew going to Minneapolis. He gets there on April 24th, 1987. He initially stayed with David, and a couple days later on the 26th, Andrew then stayed at Jeff's apartment. Jeff and his boyfriend, John Hackett, were out of town for a couple of days, so he was alone in their apartment. I wouldn't trust anybody alone in my apartment. Nope. If I thought they were sketchy. Nope. Anyways... But when they were returned, like, Andrew was gone, and all of his stuff was gone, so they were probably like, oh, oh, thank Thank God. God. We don't have to deal with him. Fucking yes. But April 27th, 1997, it just went downhill. (laughs) Um, So Andrew is now at David's apartment. He calls to Jeff's, and he's like, hey, come over, like, now. And I think it was like a voicemail on the answering machine or whatever the fuck. And so Jeff gets the voicemail and he goes over to David's apartment. He left his apartment around 9 p.m. and it got to David's around 9.45 based off of security footage and witness testimony of seeing Jeff go into the apartments. So what Jeff didn't know was that while Andrew was alone in his apartment, he stole Jeff's gun and some bullets. and. As they are all three in David's apartment, they start arguing. Apparently, the neighbors report hearing that arguing and yelling coming from David's apartment around the same time that Jeff was showing up there. It's not really known what happens next, but David doesn't show up for work on the 29th, and a co-worker goes to the apartment to check on him, only to find his body rolled up in a rug and severely beaten. David's? Or Jeff's? Jeff's body, sorry. It was David's apartment, Jeff's body. But another source stated that officers were called to the apartment and they are the ones that found the body. Um, and then another source said that um, the co-workers went there. There was no answer at the door. So then they called the management of the property who then entered the apartment and right. found the body. So regardless, somebody found the body. Cops were called eventually. When officers arrive on scene, they find Andrew's belongings at the location as well as deduce that Jeff had died around 9.55 that evening because that's when his watch had stopped. Like, ten minutes after being there. Like, good yes. lord. How insane is that? Further reports would say that Jeff had been killed by a claw hammer and he was beaten 25 times with a hammer. Good lord. Like, very aggressively. Like, that's a lot. That's overkill at this point. Um, 
At first, officers believed that David was an accomplice to the murder since there wasn't a trace of him or his vehicle at the apartment. So they knew that this was David's apartment, he's nowhere to be seen, and this Andrew guy's stuff is also here. They did not know about the gun at this time, which, by the way, the gun is a um, forty caliber Taurus PT-100 semi-automatic pistol. It's Where a mouthful. Did you get it? He got it from Jeff. Stole it from the military man. <sighs> David's family speculates that when he walked into Andrew killing Jeff already, um, Orthus... Other sources say that David was there and, like, just watched in shock and terror. Um, based off a of witness testimony, like, David was inside with Andrew already when Jeff was going into the apartment. So, again, right. nobody really knows exactly what happened right. other than the people involved. But I find it easier to believe myself that David was just kind of, like, frozen. Yeah. Like, he definitely had, like, a flight or flight or freeze moment in uh, if somebody started beating somebody with a hammer, I would probably be like, oh my god, what the fuck? <laughs> yeah. Um, I don't know. You never know what you're going to do in that situation. So, officers believe that David and Jeff ended up staying in the apartment for two days after the murder. This is because of witnesses also stating that they saw the two leave in the elevator in the apartment building on April 28th, which was the day before Jeff was found. They were, like, walking the dog and stuff. They were just doing casual stuff. Whatever. On um, May 2nd, David and Andrew were seen north of Minneapolis driving the David's red Jeep and eating lunch at a bar. Just chilling. Um, however, <laughs> sadly, police found David's body on May 3rd, one hour north of Minneapolis on the shore of East Rush Lake, which is near Rush City, Minnesota. David had been shot in the back of the head several times. Oh, I'm sorry, in the back and his head uh, several times by a forty caliber bullet, which matches the gun that he took from Jeff. David had no defensive wounds, like being restrained. The only one that he had were on his fingers, but that suggested that he held up his hands to try to stop the bullet. So yeah. I imagine he probably got shot in the back, whipped around, and then got shot in the face. Yeah. I'm not too sure, though. Then on May 4th, Andrew drove David's car to Chicago, Illinois, which is where things take a little bit of a weird turn, but this is where he's connected to the murder of 72-year-old Lee Miglin, who is a very successful businessman and real estate developer. Like, very, very successful at the time. Lee's wife, Marilyn, returned home from a business trip to find her husband dead in the garage. His body was under a car and, like, basically trying to be hidden by a trash can that they had there. Like, are you serious? Like... Dude, just, why are you trying to hide it at this Yeah, point? like, why do this half-ass? <laughs> right. You're not even, like, if you're going to try it, like, at least try. Yeah. <laughs> um, officers that get there, they reported that Lee's hands and feet were bound, as well as his head was wrapped in duct tape. His body was wrapped in plastic, brown paper, and tape. Lee was stabbed more than 20 times with a screwdriver and possibly four times in the chest with garden shears. His throat was slit by a hacksaw. Or a garden bow saw. I don't know the difference between the two, but I saw both of those listed, depending on the source. He also had multiple ribs that were broken. Then to top it off, he ditched David's Jeep a couple blocks away from Lee's house and took Lee's car. So, uh, he dick. really had a lot of fun there. When Marilyn returned home, she noticed that the house was in a really weird state. Like, the bed had been slept in. And there was a eaten ham sandwich that was in the library. 
which is fucking weird. He it appeared that he shaved in the bathroom as well as bathed because he she found like the bathtub being like had been used and then like he she made himself at home literally just made himself at home which Mm. is even creepier he also took ten thousand dollars in cash and several of lee's suits so Hmm. might as well make the trip worth it you know ten thousand's nothing take some like coins too yeah i'll get to that into a second um so andrew was in no hurry to leave the house obviously like he really made himself at home so that makes it a lot of right so that makes a lot of people believe that he knew Marilyn was going to be gone during this business trip for a long time a lot of people connect this to lee being one of his wealthy companions yeah Yeah. very closeted everybody all of lee's family like heavily denies this but i mean if he was closeted if he was afraid to tell his family you never know Whatever. The series also supported because there was no apparent forced entry into the house, there was no signs of a struggle or defensive wounds on Lee. Even though he was bound and stuff like that, it is believed by law enforcement that it was a part of, I don't know, Andrew's fascination with S&M. And Lee was probably into it at first. And then he died. And then he started (laughs) to die. So, damn. Yeah. Isn't that crazy? fucking sucks. Yeah. I can also imagine that Andrew might have knocked on the door and just, like, held up the gun and would have been like, let me in your fucking house. And being an older man who probably, he was, yeah, 72 years old. Like, I don't know if me at 72, if I would be able to fight off a younger, in his prime gentleman, not gentleman, fucking terror. Male. Who was trying to hold a gun to me. Like, I I don't know if I would have struggled either. Mm -hmm. So that could have been a reason. Um... But the writer of The Assassination of Gianni Versace, American Crime Story, Tom Rob Smith, states that Lee's murder was reflective of Andrew's personality. He told Vanity Fair, quote, The murder of Lee Miglin is full of Andrew's monstrous thoughts about how he's furious with the world and how he's attacking both the reputation and the success of Lee Miglin. And that, again, is spoken to by the women's clothing, the pornography left around the body of lee miglin in the same way that terrorists try to take or talk to the world andrew's trying to talk to the world through these monstrous acts i forgot to mention that lee was dressed in women's clothing there are also reports that andrew would often name drop lee and his son duke and he would also refer to a rich family in chicago Um, But people just dismiss this as Andrew being over the top and trying to get the reactions out of him, you know, lying, cry wolf too many times, people just stop believing you. The idea of how slash why did Andrew get comfortable in the home unless he knew that Lee's wife wasn't going to be home. So to me, it seems like Lee reached out to Andrew and was was like, like, hey, (laughs) can you come down during these days? Like, my wife's going to be out of town. And it just so happened to fit right after he decided to start murdering people. But maybe that was his plan the whole time. Maybe that's why he had to go to Minneapolis when he did, because yeah. he's planning all these things. Who knows? But Duke, um, Lee's son, states that he didn't know Andrew, and the family believes that the murder was just a random thing. Of course they did. Yeah. Why would he tell anybody that he's, you know, using Andrew's services? Right. It took a while for police to even link Lee to being a victim of Andrew, because... It was so random, and it wasn't even the same yeah. area of... Well, I mean, it wasn't close to Minneapolis, but it wasn't, like, the same jurisdiction. So it's right. harder to link murders like that. Sure. The thing that really caught him was that he ditched David's Jeep, which had been entered as 
not stolen, but it was like a vehicle of interest, maybe. Like I said, he, did I say this? I don't know. But he took Lee's 1994 green Lexus LS car, which had a fancy car phone. We all know those, right? We have car phones now. It's called a cell phone. Um, But according to phone records, the phone had been activated or used on May 4th in Union County, Pennsylvania, which is kind of like central Pennsylvania. And then Lee... Oh, I'm sorry. Ellie. Ollie. Oh, my gosh. Law enforcement. I abbreviated that, and it, I thought it was Lee, but it's not. So then law enforcement found that the phone was activated again on May 8th in Philadelphia, and then on May 9th near Penns Grove and Carney's Point Township in New Jersey. So then on the same day, on May 9th, at Finns Point Cemetery, or I'm sorry, Finns Point National Cemetery in Pennsville Township, New Jersey. This is such a mouthful. A man... Named William Reese, who is a 45-year-old male, was found shot, and he was the caretaker there at the cemetery. Fun fact, the cemetery is a Civil War cemetery. Oh. Yeah. So, that's kind of cool. William's wife, uh, I could not find her name, and I'm so sorry. I would love to give you a name, but apparently you're just William's wife to other people. She's the one that found his body after she went to his place of work when he didn't show up for dinner. She found his office door open with the radio on, went inside saw William and called the police. William was shot in the head with the same caliber of gun that Andrew stole and used in David's murder. So he was connected. According to Vanity Fair, William was most likely killed because Andrew needed his 1995 red Chevy truck. Hmm. So he could stay on the run and ditched Lee's car. So it was literally replaced with Lee's car there at the cemetery. So he's really not doing a good job of trying to... No. No. He's just, and I think he switched the plates too from Lee's car and put them on the truck. Idiot. Anyways, How it worked. Do that because I don't know. I think he thought people would be looking for a red truck with Pennsylvania plate or New Jersey right. plates. So if it was a red truck with Illinois plates, it's not going to be the car they're looking right, for. Right, but as soon as police see that the plates were switched or at least taken off of Lee's car right. they'd say hey it also might have these plates on it but also Marilyn Meglin had yeah. reported the vehicle was stolen so the plates in the database uh, were entered as stolen yeah. so I don't think he thought yeah. that would have happened oh, so if officers smart, but not that smart right yeah if officers would have Wrong run the plates they would have known instantly like right. hey this car's stolen we need to be a little bit cautious yeah that sucks that poor William was literally just Wrong place, wrong time. Yeah. So, I hate that. Unlike his other victims, luckily, I say that with a big question mark, he didn't die in similar manners in which the a criminologist refers to Andrew's MO of killing people as a pathological, sadistic, sexual offender. So you just shot him and left. He just shot him and left. That's fine. So, like, with... Compared to... Compared to Jeff, who was, like, fucking... Beat, beat with a hammer and lee who and was oh my and gosh and everything and yeah so i guess out of if you had to be murdered by andrew Kanonen, that's the way that's unfortunately the way that uh would be the best yeah. i think yeah i'm sorry that's kind of upsetting to say but it is a bright side to things i guess on may 12th andrew stayed at the normandy plaza hotel in miami beach florida at this point, he's been on the run for almost a month, so that's kind of crazy. But, I mean, when you go from state to state to state, it's kind of a little bit Was easier. Was he on the most wanted list at this point? No. Uh, wow. Yeah. Isn't that crazy? 
I think it's because it also took them so long to connect the two. To connect Lee to Andrew and then connect... um, The car should have done that. It should have, but again, it was in the late 90s. I'm not sure how good their communication between uh, other agencies were at this time. Um, And also go into, I think, a little bit later how officers kind of drop the ball sometimes, which sucks. I hate to see it, but we gotta mention it. Okay, so May 12th, he's in Florida. The night manager of the hotel that Andrew is staying at, his name is Ramon Gomez. He remembers Andrew very distinctly, and he also remembers the fact that Andrew would often change his appearance, wearing wigs, and he'd wear clothes, and he'd grow out his facial hair, he'd wear glasses. Like, he was very good at, like, changing things up. Right. He's like, every night he had a different look. So that probably Mm. also helped him fly under the radar and still hide in public. Right. Hide in plain sight. And by this time, after all the murders, there's a manhunt out for Andrew, and it was solely focused on William's truck that he had stolen. So, while he was in Miami, though... He's like, I gotta get a new car. Yeah. So, he's not using the truck. Mm -hmm. He basically, for the most part, ditched the truck in a parking garage. Yeah. So, he's smart enough to know, this is what they're looking for, I'm not gonna be found in it. Yeah. In Miami, I feel like it's... Big enough, there's transportation, you can walk places, like, get anything you want without a vehicle. The shitty part is, like, there's such a balance between, like, what kind of information you put out to the public. Yeah. To get their help in finding someone, and that information being used by the guy that they're trying to find to evade you more. So, like, everybody's looking for this truck, and he knows that. So he's not going to use it. Yeah. And I think if anybody's watched the Night Stalker documentary on Netflix, totally, totally the same situation uh. of withholding information, withholding information, and then becomes public knowledge, and then their whole case just gets shattered. Yeah. That was the most infuriating for me. So, yeah. This was on May 12th where he starts stating at the Normandy Plaza. Just think about that. Okay. Not until a month later on June 12th is Andrew officially listed on the FBI's <laughs> 10 most wanted fugitive list. Yeah, but he still continued to hide among the public. Obviously, he's succeeding to do this. So, this just proves like if you don't act shady, no one suspects you of anything. Yep. There was a I can't remember if it was Vanity Fair or Harper's Bazaar, but they mentioned they interviewed uh, somebody who worked at a gay, a very popular gay bar uh, in the Miami Beach, Florida area, and they had talked about how um, they were like, oh. That guy looks familiar. He looks like the guy that's on all of those uh, news reports and stuff like that being the killer. Like, I think I just served a serial killer, like, his drink or something like that, and it ended up being Andrew. Like, how haunting (laughs) is that to be like, I think that might be the guy, but, like, not do anything about it. You say nothing. Yeah. So, if you see something, say something. Especially when somebody dies after that's happened, you're like, ooh, shit. Honestly, I think, personally, as a dispatcher... I would rather send an officer out to check on something and make sure it is nothing than have it be something and then you think it's nothing. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Could have saved somebody's property or life. Yeah. So then, like an idiot, on <laughs> July 7th, Andrew used his own name to pawn an item at a pawn shop. And he's on the most uh, wanted list. And he knew it. And he knew it. Do you think maybe he was, like, tired of kind of hiding and was like, I really want the attention? Oh, no. He was fucking taunting them. Yeah. He was so totally taunting them, I think. It was another one of those things where it's just like, I'm one step ahead of you. Like. And he totally was. Yeah. Right. 
So we'll talk about the pawn shop in a second, but on July 14th, uh, Andrew checked out of the Normandy Plaza Hotel, and he didn't pay for his last night. He, like, up until this point was paying cash for his stay, but he didn't pay for the last night. Um, at the time, I found two sources saying that the going rate a night was $26 a night, or $36. I found both, so hmm. that's a kind of a big difference, I would think. Maybe not big. But big enough to where it's like, yeah. I don't know which one it is. Right. So I'm going to say both. Um, so he blew through that $10,000 within the two months that he's been running, which is crazy to me. Yeah. $10,000 if you're on the run and you know that, like, you have to make this money last. Like, what are you buying, Andrew? Do you think he blew through it or he was just like, fuck it? What do you mean? Like, I like I'm not going to pay. I'm just leaving. Maybe. Maybe if he didn't pay for the last night, nobody would see him leave. He could just leave. Maybe. I don't know. I don't know either. So then on July 15th, around 8.45 in the morning, Gianni Versace was walking to his mansion, Casa Cosarina. I'm probably pronouncing that wrong. I'm so sorry. Um, He was picking up some magazines and a cup of coffee, and he was going on a walk, like something he did every morning, totally casual. And walking as he was walking up to the steps of his house, or his mansion, you know, house mansion, same thing, Andrew <laughs> was waiting for him. Walked up behind him and shot Gianni once in the back of the head. And then as Gianni, I'm sure, was turning around to be like, what the fuck? He shot him again in the cheek. And again, this was the same pistol that he stole from Jeff. Gianni's long-term companion, Antonio DeMarco, I'm sorry, D'Amico, rushed to the door because he heard the gunshots and he saw Andrew fleeing down Ocean Drive. According to Vanity Fair, Andrew was then seen down several alleyways and then seen in a parking garage close to Gianni's house. Um, Other sources say that a witness chased Andrew and followed him to the parking garage where they lost sight of him. Again, I don't know which one is true, but either way, some witnesses stated that they saw someone um, who matched Andrew's description go behind a red truck that matched the description of what he stole from William, and they saw him changing clothes outside of the truck. Um, someone who worked at the parking garage noticed that there was a ticket on the truck for parking there since June 10th. So almost a month that had been just chilling there, you know? Good lord. At least. And then I also read further down, I just didn't put this in my notes, so I might not be correct in what I'm remembering, but this parking garage was, like, pretty lenient. They're like, we're gonna wait for you to be here for, like, a couple of weeks and then give you a ticket. So it was probably there for a month. Before they ticketed him on the 10th of June for parking there. So I imagine the moment he went on this, like, nationwide bolo, like, he probably ditched the fucking truck. So, unfortunately, Gianni gets rushed to the hospital, but is pronounced dead at 921 in the morning. Officers found the red truck that had Andrew's clothing next to it, as well as Andrew's passports, personal check, and a pawn shop ticket, which was traced back to uh, a pawn shop there in Miami for a gold coin that he stole from Lee's house, which this really infuriates me. I'm not sure if it's all pawn shops that do this, but this specific pawn shop was required by law to submit the pawn ticket with a thumbprint of Andrews to the Miami police. Nothing seemed to come of this. So back on July 7th, a week ago, they submitted this information. They're like, hey, this is the guy you guys have been looking for. We have his thumbprint. Like, he's pawning these items. 
They didn't, the oh Miami police God. didn't do anything with it, at least from what I could find from my research. If they did, it's not very common knowledge. <laughs> so yeah, that's kind of infuriating that also that was out there. Anyways, he also um, left behind in the truck newspaper clippings of the previous murders. So he was one of those. It. He was very into the publicity he was getting from all of this. Jesus. So, since Andrew was changing his appearance, he had all those aliases, he was blending into a crowd, especially since he was familiar with the Miami area, he just kept being on the run. So, on July 23rd, there was a caretaker for, like, a houseboat place. I don't know what they're called, but it was, like, a community of houseboats. Yeah. A dock? Yeah, because they sit in the water. Yeah, but people... Oh, I don't know. I, I'm too poor for this shit. <laughs> but whatever. He It was on Miami Beach, and there was, like, a whole bunch of houseboats in this the area. Marina? He took care of it. Okay. I guess. Um. So this caretaker, he heard a gunshot. He called the police. When officers arrived, they searched houseboats, and they found a specific one that um, was vacant at the time, but when they searched it, they found Andrew's body in there. Didn't they have, like, a whole SWAT standoff for, like, 12 hours? Yeah. they thought he was in there, and, like, yeah. the whole time he was dead. Yeah, the whole time Which he was dead. sucks. Yeah, he had a single gunshot wound to the head from the same fucking gun he's been using this whole time. Good lord. Yeah. There was no suicide note and very few personal belongings, probably because he left them all the truck. Yeah. After his death, a later examination of Andrew's behavior shows that he had a high possibility of suffering from an antisocial personality disorder. Thousand percent. Yeah, which is essentially described as having a lack of remorse or empathy, as well as being impulsive and having aggressive behavior, which <laughs> fits really to a T. fits Andrew to a T. I also don't want people to confuse antipersonality disorder with, like, being a psychopath, because they're very similar, but they're kind of also different. Psychopaths, for the most part, are defined by not being able to show love or have meaningful relationships, romantic or not. A lot of it has to do with, like, that lack of emotion, and Andrew seemed to have the ability to carry on relationships. He just had more aggression and other things with it. It's worth noting that, like, a psychopath is not actually a diagnosable um, mm -hmm. disease within the, the DSM, but antisocial personality disorder definitely is. Why Why do you think that we use psychopath so much? Is it just because of media? That's what they use? It's not, yeah, it's not an actual, like, you couldn't go up to somebody and be like, he's a psychopath, and that's, like, an actual definable mm -hmm you know, disorder. Yeah. Whereas, even, like, sociopath is the same thing. It would definitely all kind of go in that... Some kind of personality Collective, disorder. specifically. Yeah. Antisocial. So it's like a, a little, uh, media term used for antipersonality? Yeah, because it's more sexy. Oh, yeah, it's a lot easier to say than yeah. antipersonality disorder. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, anyways, law enforcement argue that maybe Andrew didn't act alone in the murder of Jeff, uh, the first victim, simply because David was in the apartment with him for a few days with uh, Jeff's dead body. So they were kind of like not understanding how somebody could be in an apartment without what are you having- gonna do, leave? That's what they think. They <laughs> thought that they, he could just left whenever he wanted to, especially uh, yeah. since he was helping them walk the dog. Like, he couldn't have asked for help then, but it's like- He had a gun. Yeah. There are so many people that are in bad situations. Like, 
sex trafficking or just like hostage situations in which leave. like you can't you just can't do or that you don't it's feel not that like easy. you can leave like right. it's not just like you can't physically go somewhere it's that you've seen somebody commit this horrible act on somebody on your mutual friend yeah somebody that you both care about and if he can do that to him yes 100% he's gonna exactly. do it to you so yep. it's it's that fear yeah like it's again you don't know what you're gonna do unless you're in that situation mm-hmm. but like i i'd be fucking terrified if yep. that happened holy totally. shit but also police state that there was evidence that there that both david and andrew had been walking around and they had like their footsteps in blood like they didn't even clean up the blood and then david apparently somehow there's evidence that he helped andrew roll jeff up in the rug if you're in a hostage situation you're gonna do whatever the fuck they tell you to do yep anything to make them happy and to make you survive but whatever there's also theories that andrew went through this killing spree because he thought he had hiv though this is not this is like proven i wouldn't say false because if he thought he had hiv they would have known it from the autopsy yeah but the autopsy states that he was negative but he didn't get tested for it he just thought he had hiv because of whatever the fuck um there was a san diego aids counselor named mike dudley who told time magazine that kunanan or andrew had met with him Hmm. and he asked several questions about hiv and aids and according to mike andrew when they had the conversation he blurted out like making i would i think he was making a scene he said if i find out who did this to me i'm gonna get them yeah right so again maybe it was just a fabrication of andrew so he could get attention or whatever yeah but that's a theory that he thought he had aids and so he started killing everybody that makes sense right that's what i do when i find out i have diseases right like anyways let's talk about the media and that's gonna be where i end it there it's a super popular case because poor Gianni was in the prime of his career like he was changing fucking high fashion like he was really changing and paving the way like he was one of the first designers to not invite socialites and wealthy people to his fashion shows he started he's the one that started inviting celebrities and he's the one that started inviting like friends and like other people like it wasn't so much of a like who's who yeah it was like he started inviting people that like would enjoy it. Yeah. Would actually wear his stuff, too. Yeah. So that really changed fashion. He had very different designs for the time. Like, he was very out there with his patterns and his clothing choices. Like, I yeah. don't really know how to explain it, but he was ahead of his time. groundbreaking, yeah. Yeah, super groundbreaking for the fashion industry. It's really upsetting because I can't even imagine what he would be doing now and am. His sister is suing a lot. Uh, Donna, is that her name, Donatella? Mm-hmm. Yeah, she's doing really great work with Versace, but I would, I would love to see what he would do. You know. Anyways, so you can see more about it. There's a 1998 movie called The Versace Murder. There's also a 2009 movie called Murder in Fashion, and a 2013 t- TV film adaptation called House of Versace. And then the TV show that we were or I was referencing earlier. Cause it's the second season of American Crime Story. Came out in 2018, and it is called The Assassination of Gianni Versace. So good. Yeah. Andrew and Gianni were both referenced in an episode of Big Mouth, and it was called Horridy House. I've never seen Big Mouth, but I read, like, the 
description of it's kind of funny. So if you like funny things, check out Big Mouth. And literally every true crime series that you can imagine has done an episode about the murder of Versace. Um, it is also worth noting that Andrew's father, Pete, while tr- while he was in the Philippines, I believe, was trying to get book deals and movie oh, he deals. he totally tried to make he it into his own was little trying, cash cow. Yeah, like, he was trying to get this money. He's like, oh, that's my son. Come interview me. Give me money. So that's fucked. fucking awful. So I just want to end on one note of irony here. In high school, Andrew was voted the least likely to be forgotten. So, Which is not wrong. It is definitely not wrong, and I'm sure that his classmates didn't think that that was the way he would be not forgotten. Probably not. <laughs> so Odds are no. Yeah. Cringe. Wow. That is Andrew Kanonen and all of his victims. Was it only five? Was I saying six you earlier? Said six, but I'm so sorry. Only it's only five. And he's considered a spree killer, right? And not a serial killer. <sighs> Yes, he is per considered a spree the killer. FBI's like official definition. Yeah, just because he didn't have even, that cooling down between. He totally had the he, cooling down between because he. What do you consider the cooling down period? He killed Jeff and David within a couple of days of each other. Then, like a week later, he killed. Like a couple of days later, he killed Lee. It's not a cooling off period per the FBI. Okay, though. he killed Lee on like May 9th or some shit like that. He. Didn't kill Gianni until July 15th. And then he killed um, William somewhere in between that. I can't remember exactly. May 12th or something like that. That's like a month in between. So he killed four of them and then had a month in between and killed the fifth. Right. Spree killer. So then what's the Night Stalker? Is he a spree killer too? Because he would go on like weeks and weeks and weeks where like he would kill two people in one night. And then the next day, he'd kill two more. Like, mm-hmm. is But that then considered... he'd have a cooling-off period between those groups. But how much was his cooling-off period? I don't know. We're not talking about that. We just nice watched stalker. this documentary. We have to know this shit. We're literally a small-time podcast <laughs> talking about the FBI's definition. I would say he's a serial killer. I would say he's a spree killer. I would say if he didn't kill himself in the boat, he would have been a serial killer then. You think he would have been done with his killings? You think, like, he killed... Yeah, they, this... would, have, they would have caught him. They would have caught him? Mm-hmm. They would have caught him. They had all of Miami closed off. They had roadblocks. He couldn't get out. Only they because he him. killed fucking Versace. And? <laughs> uh, they would have uh, caught him, for sure. I don't know. I think it would have taken a little bit longer, but... I think he would have... If he wasn't caught, he would have just kept escalating to, like, more high-profile people, because... He was building up to that. I don't know. I don't know. I guess he is a spree killer, according to your definition, which you're the cop, I'm not. According to the FBI's definition, <laughs> who came up with the term serial killer. That's he true. He is a spree killer. Yeah. So, I don't know. Loved it. Yeah? What Do you, do you have any thoughts? Uh, that's one of my favorite s- stories ever. Really? Yeah. Did I do it justice? Yeah, I thought it was great. Because I know you've covered it on... Your other podcast. No, I thought it was awesome. Sick. Do you have anything you want to add? Because you're super knowledgeable in it, too. No. No? No. Oh. (laughs) I guess we're done. You did great. Thanks. (laughs) Oh, man. I would say that this week's episode definitely has a theme of, like, narcissistic men. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Because I'm going to be telling you about... The murders of Nicole Brown Simpson and Ron Goldman, 
and the trial of O.J. Simpson. Yeah, Are you ready? I'm ready. So, first thing I want to talk about are the two victims. I feel like they don't, they kind of get forgotten. Totally. Just in the spectacle that was, like, the trial and the Bronco chase and all that, right? Yeah. And for the most part, people don't say, oh, man, do you remember the murder of Nicole? Simpson? Uh, no, like, if you say, do you know the murder of Ron Goldman? People are like, what? And you're like, OJ. And they're like, oh. <laughs> yeah, the shitty thing is, like, when it all happened and news outlets were talking about it, they, they talked about Nicole Brown Simpson because they knew that was the ex-wife of OJ. Right. And then they say, and an unknown white male. Oh, my God. Yeah. And the family heard this. On the news, and they knew about that and didn't know that it was Ron. Oh, no. Yeah, so shitty. So, starting with Nicole, um, she was born Nicole Brown on May 19th in 1959 in West Germany, actually, to uh, Judy Brown and Lou Brown. Uh, they have longer names, obviously, but they went by Judy and Lou. Her mom was German and her dad was American, and after moving to the U.S., she attended Rancho Alamitos High School in Garden Grove, California, and then Dana Hills High School in Dana Point, California, where she graduated in 90s, nope, uh, 1997, nope. <laughs> <laughs> okay, take six. I see the nine and the seven right in the middle. Oh. Um, where she graduated in 1977. And then that year is when she met O.J. Simpson when she was 18 and working as a waitress at a Beverly Hills private club called The Daisy. Ooh, The Daisy. O.J. Uh, was still married to his first wife, Marguerite, who was pregnant with their son, Aaron, when the two began dating. Ugh. So that's a good start. Simpson and Marguerite divorced in March of 1979, and then Simpson and Brown got married in 1985, five years after he retired from the NFL. Cool, cool, cool. The marriage lasted seven years, during which time they had two kiddos, Sydney, born in 1985, and Justin, born in 88. Simpson regularly physically abused Nicole during their marriage. Um, she called the police multiple times. And they only arrested him once, after which he pleaded no contest to spousal abuse in 1989. She pleaded no contest? Yeah. Okay. And she ended up dropping the charges anyways <sighs> when her dad refused to help her and instead pushed her to get back together with OJ as oh. OJ sent him, basically set him up with a lucrative Hertz dealership. Oh my gosh, mm -hmm. are you kidding me? No. So, eventually, Nicole filed for divorce in 1992, citing irreconcilable differences, and following that, OJ and Nicole got back together. Oh my god, no. Some audio was released during the murder trial of OJ Simpson, which revealed that Nicole called 911 on October 25th of 1993, crying, saying that, quote, he, OJ, is going to beat the shit out of me. He said that after the operator was like, stay on the line with me. And she's like, no, he's going to beat the shit out of me if he knows that I called. When police okay. arrived, Nicole was secretly recorded by Sergeant Craig Lolly saying, quote, he gets very, he gets a very animalistic look in him. All his veins pop out. His eyes are black, just black. I mean, cold like an animal. And I mean, very, very weird. And when I see it, it scares me. Um, Brown also stated that Simpson hadn't hit her in four years. 
Several months after this incident, the relationship would end for a second and final time when Nicole moved out of their shared home um, and moved into the house that she would later occupy for the rest of her life. What's up? So he he told somebody that he hadn't hit her for four years? No, she said that. Oh. I was like, so that's supposed to make him look like a good guy? Yeah, like, she had this incident where she called the cops, and she's like, it's not that big of a deal. He hasn't hit me in four years, and that was after his arrest, his original arrest. Oh, my god! So it had been four years, supposedly. I mean, people revert back. Totally. So, mm-hmm. I don't know. Ron Goldman was born in 1968. He grew up in the community of Buffalo Grove, Illinois, which was kind of near Chicago, His parents divorced in 1974 when he was about six, and he spent a little bit of time in his mom's custody, but after that ended up being raised completely by his dad, Fred Goldman, and lived with him and his younger sister, Kim Goldman. Sidebar, she has a fantastic uh, podcast called Confronting OJ, which I highly recommend if you're into this. Um, She talks to the prosecution. She talks to jurors. It's phenomenal. Yeah. And it's a side that you don't really get to hear because we didn't know that much about Ron. Right. And you were listening to it the other day while you were doing research, and mm-hmm. I thought it was very interesting to hear, like, jurors' perspectives of stuff. Absolutely. Especially, like, after the trial, yep. how they feel. Yep. Um, he was a student at Illinois State University for one semester. He planned to major in psychology, but then Fred, his dad, and Kim were going to move to California, and so he decided to go with them and move there as well. He ended up working uh, as a camp counselor when he was younger and volunteered to help children with cerebral palsy. Aww. While living in Los Angeles, Goldman took some classes at Pierce College. He learned to surf, and he liked to play beach volleyball. He liked rollerblading and nightclubbing, all very California activities. Yeah. You know, rollerblading sounds like a blast. Right? So when he moved to California... Like I said, he had been 18 and was already a semester into college when he left. So he lived separate from his family and supported himself by working as an employment headhunter and a tennis instructor. And then he was a waiter and he went to like several different restaurants throughout his time there and was like a waiter there. So um, he worked as a model for Barry Zeldis. Dang. Let's see. Not long before his death, he earned an EMT's license. What? But he never pursued that career. And then he ended up being a, a waiter at the Mezzaluna restaurant in California. Okay. So after he got his EMT license, he told friends that he really wasn't like interested in that career field. That's kind of something that happens. I've seen a lot with the different people who go to get their EMT license. Like they're interested in something maybe in the medical field, but then once they you know, go through it, sit on the ambulance and, you know, yeah, go through the actual field training of it. They're not into it. Yeah. Um, I feel like EMTs get treated like shit. Totally. <laughs> like, they put up with a lot of stuff. Like, they're the first on scene. They're exactly. All of these things, the perception but... of the job, I think, is a lot different than that, like, what the job is really like. Yeah. And I think a lot of people figure that out. Yeah. So, he expressed... To his friends that he really wanted to maybe open a bar or a restaurant in the Brentwood area. Uh-huh. Um, he had the vision of opening a future bar restaurant characterized not by a name, but by the Ankh, which is an uh, Egyptian religious symbol for life. Ooh. Which matched a tattoo that he got on his shoulder. 
on a whim with his best friend. They were oh. just out one night, and they're like, oh, let's go get tattoos. They're, like, pointing at the wall. And they're like, yeah, so one. his friend was like, I'm going to get this. And it was Egyptian. Mm-hmm. And he's like, I want to get the same one. And she's like, nope. Oh. <laughs> so he's like, okay, I will just get this one then. And then after he learned what it meant, he liked it. So he's like, it oh, okay, out. this actually works out. I yeah, it totally This is not out. a regrettable choice at all. <laughs> he also expressed some uh, aspirations to maybe act and be on a show, which everybody in California does. Just Same. kidding, I don't want to say that, but it seems to be a common Who theme. Who doesn't want to be on a TV show? Come on. I don't. Oh. Do you? What kind? It'd be so much fun. Are you kidding me? Wow. I would love to be an actress. Really? Yeah. I had no idea. I Yeah, I don't know. I would never take acting classes or anything like that, but if it were to, like, stumble upon me, yeah, <laughs> and I, like, I was actually good okay. at it, I'd be down. Huh. <laughs> Who knew? Not me. Good thing we're getting married. Yeah. <laughs> good thing we're getting married. <laughs> what does that have to do I don't with know. anything? Um, uh, who knew? So We're learning things about each other. <laughs> <laughs> so... He appeared as a contestant on the short-lived game show Studs in 1992. Same. And he had dated Jackie Bell for nearly two years before she broke off their relationship three months before his death. Who's Jackie Bell? His ex-girlfriend. Was she anything big? No. Oh, okay. You said her name like she was like Marilyn Monroe or something. Right, right, right. No. Sorry. Nope. My My bad. Maybe she is. I've never heard of her. I don't know. You're right, though. The inflection did go with that. <laughs> now that I'm reading it in my head. Uh, <laughs> I think I just accidentally didn't separate those sentences no, it's into good. different it's so bullet points. <laughs> um, according to a June 15, 1994 LA Times article published three days after his death, Ron probably met Nicole six or so weeks before they were both killed when he borrowed her Ferrari. Oh, I casual. T- I, yeah, that was part of people's Ferraris um, all the time. <laughs> they became better friends and went to clubs together, met for coffee and dinner, all those kinds of things during the month and a half that they were friends before they both died. According to police and friends, their relationship was platonic. They did not uh, have any like romantic interests. And according to an article, he had borrowed her car when he had first met his friend Craig Clark for lunch. And according to Clark, he told him it was her car, but he did not say she was his girlfriend. They were just friends. Like, that was highly speculated during the trial, but every source says nah. Yeah. So, yeah, that's Ron Goldman. Cool. So, we're going to transition into the murders. Murders. So, at 12.10 a.m. on June 13th, 1994, Nicole Brown Simpson and Ron Goldman were found murdered outside of Nicole's Bundy Drive condo in Brentwood, L.A. Quick question. If you've covered this, I'm so sorry. I must have, like, blacked out or something. But, um, what did Nicole do for a living? I did not cover that. So, every source I read cites her last job being the one where she met O.J., my guess. Yeah, I mean... Because of this, the way that OJ, like, operated, A, he was, like, number one draft pick. He was extremely wealthy. I'm gonna guess that he wanted her to be a housewife. And especially if he, like, bribed and paid off her dad, I imagine he probably did the same thing to kind of keep her, because he seems like he yeah. had that repetition of, like, and breaking up. there's no like... way she didn't get that, like, very much in the in the divorce. So. Yeah. I don't know if she had some side hustles or did anything, but every every source says cites her as a waitress, 
meeting OJ and then doesn't talk about anything after that. Gotcha. So, cool. Who knows? Well, if anybody knows, hit me up, please. Yeah. Both victims had been dead for about two hours prior to the arrival of police. The defense and the prosecution agreed that the murders took place sometime between 10.15 and 11 p.m. that night. Nicole's Akita dog, which is a breed of dog. Akita. Yep, Akita. With bloodstained paws led neighbors to the body. Oh, my God. So the neighbors, Stephen Schwab, um, he testified that while he was walking his dog in the area near Nicole's house at around 11.30 p.m., noticed that her dog had bloody paws, but he wasn't injured at all. So he snags the dog, takes the dog to another neighbor friend, who Mm -hmm. took the dog out for a walk at around midnight, and testified that the dog tugged on the leash and led him to Nicole's house, and there they discovered the body of Nicole, and flagged down a passing police officer, which, what are the odds of that? I know. So... Nicole was found face down and barefoot at the bottom of the stairs leading to her front door, which was left open with no signs of forced entry or any evidence that anyone had actually gone into the house. The scene had a large amount of blood, but the bottoms of Nicole's feet were clean, which showed that she probably died first. Right. She had been stabbed multiple times in the head and neck, but had a few defensive wounds on her hands, which implied a very short struggle. Uh, to investigators. The final cut was deep into her neck, severing her carotid artery. Ugh. It's believed that he stabbed her and she was injured to the point where she was not really moving yeah. anymore. And then he attacked Ron. He grabbed her hair, Ugh. grabbed her head by the hair, pulled her head up, slit her throat, <gasps> and then went back over to Ron because Ron ended up having some of her hairs on him. Oh my god. I um, this. That's so fucked up. So, she did have a large bruise on the center of her upper back, so investigators concluded that after whoever killed her had killed Goldman, he returned to uh, Nicole's body, put his foot on her back, pulled her head back, like I said, and slit her throat. Her larynx could be seen through the gaping wound in her neck, and vertebrae C3 was inside, so he cut through her spine. What the fuck? Her head remained barely attached to her body. That's a lot of force. Yeah. Cutting someone's neck, mm-hmm. like, throat is yeah. brutal enough, but, like, yep. he had yep. so much force. Yep. Oh, yep. my God. Oh. So, Ron Why? was found laying nearby, close to a tree and the fence. He had been stabbed multiple times in the body and neck, but, like, Brown had relatively few defensive wounds, which also signified a fairly short struggle. Forensic evidence from the L.A. County coroner alleged that Ron had been attacked and stabbed repeatedly in the neck and chest with one hand while the assailant restrained him uh, in, like, a chokehold. Oh, my gosh. Near Ron were the assailant's blue knit cap and left-hand glove, an extra-large Eris Isotoner light leather glove, and an envelope containing the glasses that Ron was at the property to return to um, Nicole. It's worth noting that OJ was sponsored by the company Isotoner. And wore an extra large. Of course. So, bloody shoe prints leaving the scene through the back gate were left by the assailant. And to the left, some foot tr- footprints were, to the left of some of the footprints were drops of blood uh, from the assailant. Which led investigators to believe that his left hand was bleeding. Um, because they were to the left of the footprints. 
Gotcha. Um, so Simpson was actually scheduled for a red-eye flight at 11.45 p.m. to Chicago to play golf the next day at a convention with some reps from Hertz, which was a rental car corporation, so OJ was contracted to do, like, a bunch of commercials with them, basically, after his NFL career just kind of kept money coming through. Right. His limousine driver, a dude named Alan Park, was scheduled to pick him up and take him to the L- to LAX, and he arrived early at around 10.25. He drove around Simpson's house to make sure he could figure out, like, the area with his stretch limousine, because logistically it's hard to maneuver one of those vehicles. A little bit. Um, and he testified that he didn't see Simpson's Ford Bronco parked outside when he first got there. Park testified also that he had been looking for and seen the house number on the curb, and the prosecution presented exhibits to show that the position in which the Bronco was found the next morning was right next to the house number. So, if it had been there when the limo driver got there, he would have seen it, based on his testimony that he went around the house and saw these house numbers. So, there's no way he could have missed the Bronco. Right. Um, The limo driver parked opposite the Ashford Street gate, and then he drove back to the Rockingham gate to check which driveway would have been, like, the best for his limo. Yeah. He's a young buck who is very into his job. Young buck. He decided that the Rockingham entrance was a little bit too tight, so he went back around to the Ashford gate and began to buzz the intercom at around 1040, and he got no response, and he's like, fuck, we're gonna miss this flight. Right. Um, he noted the house was dark, nobody appeared to be home, and he smoked a cigarette and made several calls to his boss to get Simpson's home phone number so he could call him. Uh-huh. He also testified that he saw a figure around the same size as Simpson enter the house through the front door where the driveway starts, and the lights started to come on. He didn't see what direction that figure came from, though. At the same time, he witnessed the shadowy figure head towards the south walkway where the bloody glove would later be found. Uh, a male named Cato Kalen, who was living in OJ's, like, bungalow house. Yeah. Guest house, basically. Had just previously been on the phone with a friend. And around 10.50, something crashed into the wall of his guest house, where which he described as, like, three loud thumps, which were big enough that he thought it might be an earthquake. Oh my so, god. Yeah, so he hung up the phone and he's like fuck this might be an earthquake he goes outside to figure out what made those noises but decided not to go all the way down the dark pathway because he was like what if it's not an earthquake what if it's something worse right so he walked to the front of the property where he saw the limo outside he let the limo into the gate and then oj finally came out the front door a few minutes later saying oh fuck i overslept so Both the limo driver and Cato would later testify that Simpson seemed agitated that night, worth noting. The limo driver also said that on the way to the airport, Simpson complained about how hot it was, and he was sweating a lot, and he rolled down the window, but it was not a warm night at all. Yeah. He also testified that he loaded four luggage bags into the car that night, with one of them being like a backpack that Simpson would not let him touch. So he loaded three of them, but then Simpson was like, I'll get this one. Of course. Um, James Williams, a, an employee at LAX, testified that Simpson only checked three bags that night, and the police determined that the missing luggage bag was the one that the limo driver said that OJ wouldn't let him touch. Okay. 
Another witness that was not used at the trial, another like employee, claimed he saw Simpson at the airport discarding items from a bag into a trash can. So the detectives determined that they think <sighs> that included the murder weapon, shoes, and clothes that Simpson oh wore during God. the murder that were never found. Yeah. So soon after the police like identified Nicole Brown Simpson, the police commander Keith Bushy ordered detectives Lang, Van Natter, Phillips, and Furman to notify OJ of her death and to give him a ride to pick up his kiddos who had been at Nicole's condo the time of the murders and were now at the police station. How fucked is that? That's Nobody super talks fucked. about that. Yeah. But the kids were literally inside. So that's fine. They buzzed the intercom at OJ's property for over 30 minutes, but received no response. They noted that the Bronco was parked at Rockingham at an awkward angle. Mind you, OJ is on his way to, to the airport, or at the airport, or already in Chicago at this point. Right. So, they were like, that car is parked there weird. The back end was, like, out more than the front. And then they noticed that there was blood on the door, which uh, they thought meant somebody inside might be hurt. Oh, Okay. Detective Van Natter then told Detective Furman to scale the wall and unlock the gate to allow the other three detectives to enter, and they would end up arguing that they entered without a search warrant because of the exigent circumstances, specifically out of fear that someone inside might be injured. So, they didn't say that they thought OJ was, like, part of it. They thought that maybe somebody went and killed Nicole and then went to kill OJ, too. Oh. Mm -hmm. So. I mean, I think that makes sense. Already dealing with the situation at hand with Nicole. Mm -hmm. Like. And a rando Ron being murdered there too. Right. Yeah. It would make sense that if somebody was going on a killing spree and you go to visit her ex-husband, like. Yep. That that's what would be in my mind mm -hmm. too. So. Yeah. I don't know. So, Detective Furman briefly interviewed Cato, who told him that the Bronco belonged to Simpson and that earlier that night he heard all those loud noises in a walk around the property to figure out maybe what caused those noises that Cato was talking about. Furman discovered a bloody glove, which was later determined to be the matching right-hand glove to the one that they found at the uh, Brentwood. Yeah. So, that evidence was determined to be probable cause to issue a warrant for OJ. Gotcha. Detective Ron Phillips testified that when he called Simpson in Chicago to tell him that Nicole was killed, he sounded, quote, very upset, but was oddly unconcerned about the circumstances of her death. Oh, no. I don't know. I don't know how I would react. I don't know if I would directly say, like, how is she killed? That's true. I'm, I'm not sure. Again, it's a situation where, like, you don't know what you're going to do unless yeah. you're in it. Uh, Phillips noted that Simpson only asked if the kids had seen the murder, and... Didn't ask if they had been hurt, which is weird. Like, if you if your wife was killed and you don't know who did it, you want to know maybe if your kids were killed or right, taken that, or hurt. That would be my first question. First, 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 first question. question. Are the kids okay? Yeah. And then, did they see it? Yeah. Like, that might be the order that I would think in, mm -hmm. but again, I don't know. Unless um, he knew the kids were okay, which would imply that, that he, he was involved he in He was like, well, way. I know I didn't. Go hurt him. Yeah. So. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the police contacted OJ at his home on Monday after he was back from Chicago, uh, which would have been June 13th, and they took him to Parker Center for questioning. Detective Lang noticed that he had a cut on his finger on his left hand that was consistent with where the killer was bleeding from and asked him how he got it. 
At first, he said he cut it accidentally while in Chicago after learning about Nicole's death. What? He just, like, <clears throat> cut himself? That's what he said. Okay. But then he also said, I don't know, I think I reopened an old cut, and then he also said, I don't know, I golf. Uh, which, I don't think. Those cutting golf clubs your are hands. hard. They, you know? <laughs> so, they can cut you like three a different inconsistent stories with how that injury happened. Lang then informed OJ that blood was found inside the Bronco, at which point Simpson admitted he did cut the, his finger on the same day as the murders, but okay. didn't remember how. Uh-huh. And then he voluntarily gave some of his blood for comparison with evidence collected at the crime scene. I'm not sure if he knew that you could find, like, match blood Yeah, at that time, and it was very new. Like, DNA was in its infancy at that point. And really hadn't been used in, like, criminal trials all that much. So maybe he didn't know. Maybe he was just like, oh yeah, test it. See what happens. Yeah. I didn't leave any blood behind. Right. So, at this point, OJ hired uh, an attorney, Robert Shapiro, who was, like, a big heavy hitter. Big guy. Yeah. On uh, June 14th, who began assembling what they call the Dream Team, but noted that... OJ was becoming, like, increasingly unhinged, and he had started, like, seeing a uh, psychologist or therapist for depression after his wife died. Oh, same. Um, The next day, preliminary results from the DNA testing came back with matches to Simpson, but the DA delayed filing charges until all the results came back. Thursday, June 16th, Simpson spent that night at his friend... Uh, Robert Kardashian's house, who ended up also reinstating his law license so that he could be part of the dream team. But he stayed the night at Kardashian's house. Shapiro asked several doctors to attend Simpson's purported fragile mental state. Okay. Which is weird. That's like a very like famous person thing to do. Oh, yeah. Like, I'm going to bring all these doctors over. Yeah. Weird. On Friday... Detectives recommended that Simpson be charged with two counts of first-degree murder with special circumstance of multiple killings after the final DNA results came back. The LAPD let uh, Shapiro know at 8.30 a.m. on that Friday that Simpson was going to have to surrender or be taken in. Yeah. At 9.30, Shapiro went to Kardashian's house to tell Simpson that he was going to have to surrender by 11. That was like the agreed-upon time. Which was an hour after the charges were filed. Simpson told Shapiro, he, he's like, okay, um, I don't want them coming here. I'll just go surrender. Which the police agreed to because he's famous. We give them all this shit that they normally wouldn't get. They believed that Simpson was so famous that he wouldn't attempt to flee because it would be such a like shit show if he did. Right, and also everybody would recognize him, so yeah. where is he going to hide? Yeah. Police even agreed to delay his surrender until 12 so Simpson could be seen by a mental health specialist after showing signs of suicidal ideation. He updated his will, called his mom, called his kids, wrote three sealed letters, one to his kids, another to his mom, and one to the public, which is weird. Oh, it's because um, he's a, you know, public figure. Right. He has to address his people. It's worth noting that at 5 p.m. that day, which was after some of the other events that happened... Kardashian, one of his defense lawyers, read Simpson's public letter, and in the letter, Simpson sent greetings to 24 friends and wrote, First, everyone understand that I had nothing to do with Nicole's murder. He described the fights with Nicole and their decision to not get back together, and asked the media as 
as a last wish, in quotes, uh, not to bother his kids. And then he wrote to his then girlfriend, I'm sorry, we're not going to have our chance. As I leave, you'll be in my thoughts. He also included, I can't go on, and an apology to the Goldman family. Okay. Um, the letter concluded, quote, don't feel sorry for me. I've had a great life, great friends. Please think of the real OJ and not this lost person. So pretty much everyone agrees that this is, one, a suicide letter, and two, a confession. You think? Yeah. Even though he starts out by saying, I did not kill her. Why would he apologize to the Goldmans? Did he just say, I'm so sorry? Also, why would he go kill himself? That's true. If he thought he was free, he'd be like, that's fine. We'll go to trial. Yeah. I don't know. It's hard to say. I think that, I don't know, if I were somehow tied to a murder that I didn't commit, like, not that I would just kill myself, but I would be so scared that I'd probably be like, I have to, like, try to avoid this at all costs, and if at that moment he felt like killing himself... Yeah, but also, he he's friends with the cops. Yeah, I don't know, man. <laughs> Can't so, excuse his behavior. More than a thousand reporters waited for Simpson to... A thousand? Turn himself in, yep. Oh my god. Um, but he did not arrive as stipulated. The LAPD then notified Shapiro that Simpson was going to be arrested at the Kardashians' house, so they were going to go just go there and make it happen. Because he, that's where he last was. Yep. Kardashian Shapiro told Simpson this, but when the police arrived an hour later, Simpson was MIA. Oh, yeah. With his good friend Al Cowings. Three, the three sealed letters he had written were left behind at 1.50 p.m. Commander Dave Gascon, who is a... LAPD's chief spokesman publicly declared that Simpson was a fugitive and the police issued an APB for him and an arrest warrant for Cowlings for helping. Yeah. So, this leads us to the infamous Bronco chase, which is the stupidest thing I've ever heard of (laughs) in my police career. Yeah? Just saying. Did you guys study this in the academy? No, it's... it's, Because it's bad. Okay. So... They weren't even like, this is what you don't do? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, I don't think you need to say that. Okay, okay. (laughs) Once I tell you, you're going to be like, oh my god. Um, So news helicopters searched the Los Angeles highway system for Cowling's white Ford Bronco. They somehow both had four Broncos. Four Broncos. Very Um, popular. Maybe he got it because because OJ OJ had had it. (laughs) (laughs) At 5.51 p.m., Simpson reportedly called 911 call was traced to the Santa Ana freeway near Lake Forest and at around 6.20 p.m., which is like half an hour later, a motorist in Orange County let the California Highway Patrol know that he saw somebody who he believed to be Simpson riding in the Bronco on the I-5 freeway heading north, driven by Al Cowlings. Police tracked the calls placed from Simpson on his cell phone, and at 6.45, uh, Police officer saw the Bronco head north on Interstate 405. She caught up to it. Cowlings yelled out that Simpson was in the backseat of the car and had a gun held to his own head. So the officer backed off, but followed the vehicle at a whopping 35 miles per hour with up to 20 police cars following her in the chase. Okay, here's my first question. (laughs) What did he say when he was calling 911? He he was saying the same shit. He was like, "I'm not coming in. I'm gonna. I've got a gun in here. All this stuff." Oh my gosh! I am so glad I was not that dispatcher. Right. So then, <laughs> um, Detective Tom Lang, who had interviewed Simpson about the murders on June 13th, realized that he had Simpson's cell phone number, and he called him a bunch of times. And then, um, a colleague ended up hooking up a 
tape recorder to Lang's phone and captured the conversation between the two of them once uh, Simpson finally answered. And Lang repeatedly pleaded with Simpson to just toss the gun out of the window so that, like, his mom wouldn't be sad, his kids wouldn't lose two parents, all the different um, CIT, you know, everything. Right, right, right. So, Simpson apologized for not turning himself in and said that he... He was the only one who deserved to get hurt. OJ was? And, uh-huh. Even, okay. That's what OJ said about himself. Okay. And said, quote, I just want to go with Nicole. He asked Lang to, quote, just let me get to the house. Yeah. And said, quote, I need the gun for me. Cowling's voice is overheard in the recording, recording after the Bronco had arrived at Simpson's house and was surrounded by police pleading with Simpson to just... Give himself up and end everything peacefully. Don't kill himself. Don't kill anyone else. Just give yourself up. Yeah. Thousands of spectators and onlookers packed the overpasses and were saying shit like, go OJ, go. All this bullshit. Yeah. It's worth noting that the TV coverage of this was outstanding. They literally played this over uh, one of the games of the NBA Finals. No. Yes, and Domino's and Pizza Hut orders skyrocketed. Because people were like, we're watching, just, we're watching yeah. this chase and we're and just going to... It lasted gonna, for hours. We're just going to eat pizza and see who wins. Yeah. Oh, um, that... Okay. Theoretically, since it was being so televised and since I'm sure that they got some pretty good footage... What would have happened? Was it live? Do you know if it was a live feed? Mm-hmm. Yeah. What if he actually shot himself? I know. Like, holy shit. Oh, like, that's fucked. That's I know. something that we're going to show millions of people? Yep. Oh my god, this world is fucked up. Yep. So, Simpson reportedly demanded that he be allowed to speak to his mom before he would surrender. The chase ended at around 8 p.m. at his Brentwood estate, which was 50 miles later, where his son Jason ran out of the house, 27 SWAT officers were, like, surrounding, waiting. Yeah. And Simpson stayed in the Bronco for, like, 45 minutes, and nobody fucking did anything about it. Exits around 8.50 p.m. with a framed family photo, and went inside for about an hour. Yeah, I guess brought it with him, I'm not sure. Police spokesman stated that he spoke to his mom and drank a glass of orange juice, which, (laughs) don't even get me started on the irony of that. Um, (laughs) I was like, oh yeah, orange juice sounds good, and then I realized. (laughs) His name's OJ. Um, Shapiro arrived and Simpson surrendered to authorities a few minutes later. In the Bronco, police found $8,000 in cash, a change of clothing, a loaded three fifty seven Magnum, a United States passport, family pictures, and a disguise kit with a fake goatee and mustache. Do you think his plan was to get to an airport and totally just 100%, book it? hundred percent, I think But that. he got caught, so he's like, well, I've got this gun. Yep. Simpson was booked at Parker Center and taken to the Men's Central Jail, and Cowlings was booked on suspicion of harboring a fugitive and held on a $250,000 bail. Damn. So, another point worth noting that I thought was very important. The Bronco Chase, the suicide notes... The items found in the Bronco were never presented as evidence in the criminal trial. What? Marcia Clark, who was the head of the prosecution team, conceded that such evidence did imply guilt, but she said that the public reaction to the chase and the suicide note as proof the trial had been compromised by Simpson's celebrity status, and they couldn't prove that Simpson, because it was not his Bronco, 
This Al's Bronco. They couldn't prove that Simpson was the one who packed all that stuff. So they thought that maybe Al did it. it was and was like, hey, buddy, we're going for a ride. Yeah. And then he just never stopped. Yep. Okay. So. <laughs> I think that might have been a misstep. Personally. Hindsight's twenty twenty, obviously. Right. I can see her point, but that point is a very exclusive point to somebody who is a lawyer. Right? And would not make a difference to the jury. I don't yeah. think. So, let's move on to the trial. So, the jury... Hundreds of people were called in and put through the process of jury selection, which included interviews and a 75-page questionnaire, which helped determine if they would be good jurors for this particularly high-profile case. So they're not usually 75 pages long? I think they are all different depending on the case. 75 pages? They don't have, like, a universal questionnaire. I get you. I can barely even fill out, like, a four-page thing for the doctor of my medical history right 75 pages yep. oh so. lord i'm so glad i was not alive back then you were alive well not alive, alive enough to be a juror okay. <laughs> <laughs> um 12 jurors were chosen along with 12 alternates and then they were sent to a nearby hotel to be sequestered which meant they were basically mandated to stay pretty much in their rooms. Their rooms didn't have TVs or radios or anything. There were no cell phones. There's no internet. They weren't allowed to talk to each other really about the case. Definitely not about the case. And they really weren't encouraged to like interact beyond that either. Couldn't watch TV unless the programming was authorized. So like they would have like a TV time where they all would come into the lobby, watch one TV together. Uh, and it was, was all authorized like movies. Yeah, something like movies had nothing to do with Literally. relevance yep. of what's going on now. Mm-hmm. Ugh. Um, they couldn't read How books upsetting. unless they were approved. No newspapers. Um, oh, this was only supposed to be gosh. for a short time because, you know, trials generally don't go on as long as this one did. They ended up being stuck there for almost nine months. Honestly, <laughs> it's just, personally, I I couldn't do that. That was a huge issue. Like, huge issue. You're just, like, that's, like, prison. Imprisonment, mm-hmm. basically. I'm just... They literally had deputies stationed at the hotel 24-7. Yeah. So. Like, very little forms of entertainment. Like, I get it. Like, back in the day, people survived without television. But at the same they time, it's, like... They couldn't swim in the pool. They couldn't do... Like... Yeah, like, not even going out for a basic walk around. Nope. No, like God, ugh. no. Nope. That must have been awful. By the time the trial was over, only a couple of the original jurors had stuck it out, and the rest were alternates. Dang. So, um, several were dismissed for being dishonest about their biases or their knowledge of the case, and then some had some health issues. Some just could not take the isolation. They said, fuck this, Judge Ito, I'm out. Like, yeah, we're done. I don't blame them. Yep. It's also worth noting that the judge was um, an American-Asian man, um, Judge Ito. It turned out later, uh, we find out that his wife is actually, she's either a lieutenant or a captain, or the police department, in which all of these detectives worked under. He did not disclose Oh no. that, and it had to be determined later by a third-party judge whether he could even preside over it. And be unbiased. Yep, and this was midway through the trial that they found this out, because they found Detective Furman had some tapes from a previous like ia investigation that involved him talking shit about judge ito's wife no yep so anywho 
back on track. Um, the evidence that they ended up finding and presenting in court, um, Simpson's DNA was found on blood drops next to the bloody footprints near the victims at the Bundy crime scene. Probability of error in this, of it not being yeah. Simpson, 1 in 9.7 billion. Of it not being him? So there's a very, so very, 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 very good chance that it was, it was him. him. <laughs> Simpson's DNA was found on a trail of blood drops leading away from the victims towards uh, and on the back gate of Bundy. Probability of error was 1 in 200. Simpson, Ron Goldman, and Nicole Brown's DNA was found in the blood on the outside of the door and the inside of Simpson's Bronco. Okay. Probability of error was 1 in 21 billion. Okay, so very, 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 very good chance again. Yep. Simpson's DNA was found on blood drops leading from the area where his Bronco was parked at Simpson at his house uh, yeah. to the front door entrance. Simpson, Brown, and Goldman's DNA was found on a bloody glove found behind Simpson's home. That right-hand glove that they found. Yeah. And Simpson and Nicole Brown's DNA was found on blood on a pair of socks that were in Simpson's bedroom. Probability of error in that, 1 in 6.8 billion. Okay. So, um, that was just all DNA, right? Hair and fiber evidence included um, testimony from a hair and fiber expert named Susan Broadbank. And she testified to the following. Uh, the fibers from the glove found at his house matched the ones found at the crime scene, providing they were each other's mate. So, the right glove definitely went with the left glove. Gotcha. Um, both of the victims, the two gloves, the blue knit cap worn by the killer, all had hair consistent with Simpson's. Okay. The hair in the blue knit cap was worn by the killer, uh, was embedded in the seams, indicating it was there from being worn repeatedly. So, something he wore a lot. So, the thing with hair, um, especially back then, was you couldn't match, like, if you took my hair, they couldn't say... Like, now you could find DNA in it, but back then they couldn't. So they could say this type of hair matches samples that we took from her. So they could compare the samples and say the probability of these coming from the same person are this, but they can't match it to the person specifically. So what they did is they took some of Simpson's hair and they said, this hair type, texture, etc. is a very, 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 very close match to what Simpson has on his noggin. Yeah. So, it's worth putting that out there. Um, and it's not just something that was, like, sprinkled in the hat. It was right. worn it was in, embedded there. in yeah, there. It was embedded yep. in there. So, clearly it was on his head for at least one or two times. Mm-hmm. Three, five, I don't know. Yeah. Dark blue cotton clothing fibers were found on both victims. And the video footage from the dance recital that Simpson had attended earlier that night shows him wearing a similarly colored shirt. Kato Kalin testified that Simpson was still wearing that shirt when he got home from McDonald's. Um, They both gone to McDonald's is a weird thing. But not anymore when he answered the door for the limo driver, so he had changed it. So the police searched his house, but the shirt was never found, so it was probably dumped at the the, airport. Yeah, I was going to say the limo driver that came to his house right. after the murders. Right. Okay. I don't I didn't mention this, but so earlier that night they had a dance recital. Um that their daughter had a dance recital yeah. and they both went and um OJ wasn't invited to go to dinner at Mezzaluna with them, so he was butthurt. Um like Shawnee Stampanato for not going to the Academy yeah. Awards with Lana. Yeah. So 
Nicole's mom left her sunglasses on the table. Nicole was kind of friends with Ron, calls up the restaurant and's like, hey, can you guys hang on to this? And Ron's like, how about I just, uh, I'll just bring him by your house as soon as my shift is over. Okay. And that's why he was there, because he was just doing a nice thing for a friend. That sucks. Which is fucked. Another wrong moment, wrong yep. place, wrong time. That's what it's called. Yep. Hair consistent with Ron was found on Nicole, and clothing fibers consistent with Nicole were found on Ron. This supported the prosecution's theory that the assailant killed Nicole first and then killed Goldman, or Ron, and afterwards went back over to Nicole to cut her throat, like we said. The hair consistent with uh, Nicole that was found on the Rockingham glove was torn, which also supports the prosecution claim that the killer grabbed her by her hair to cut her throat. Fibers that were used in the 93-94 model year Bronco, the same car that that Simpson owned, Uh were found on both victims. So that supports the idea that he got out of his Bronco, had fibers from the seats Mm -hmm. that got on the two victims. Those fibers were also found in the cap and on both gloves. The glove found at Simpson's home that belonged to the murderer had hair and clothing fibers consistent with Simpson, Brown, and Goldman, as well as fibers from the Bronco. And also fibers from the dog. Okay. Hairs from the dog. That sounds weird. Fibers Fibers from the dog. (laughs) The carpet dog that we own. Yeah. (laughs) So then, an FBI shoe print expert testified that the bloody shoe prints found at the crime scene and inside Simpson's Bronco were made from a rare and expensive pair of Bruno Mali Italian shoes. Ooh, expensive. Uh-huh. He determined the shoes were a size 12, which was the same size that Simpson wears and only sold at Bloomingdale's. Only 29 pairs of that size were sold in the U.S. Ever. Oh, gosh. <laughs> and um, one of them was sold at the same store that Simpson often buys his shoes from. This expert also testified that despite two sets of footprints at the crime scene, only one attacker was present during, uh, because they were all made by the same shoes. During cross-examination, one of Simpson's lawyers, Effie Bailey, suggested the murderer deliberately wore shoes that were the wrong size, which the expert dismissed as ridiculous because it fucking is. Simpson denied ever owning a pair of those, quote, ugly-ass shoes, and there was only circumstantial evidence that he did. Although, the prosecution could not prove that Simpson owned a pair of these shoes, the FBI expert testified that a similar bloody shoe print was left on the floor inside his Bronco. Okay. Brinshek, uh, which was another one of Simpson's lawyers, suggested that Mark Furman, uh, Detective Mark Furman, broke into the Bronco, left the footprint there, and then he produced a photo of Furman walking through a puddle of blood. The FBI expert admitted that he was not able to confirm that the shoe print in the car definitely came from the Bruno Molly shoe, but dismissed Sheck's claim because none of the shoe prints at the crime scene were made by Furman's shoes. So it didn't make any sense. Yeah. I mean, unlikely that he could have made a bloody shoe print in the Bronco, because sizing and all that. Mm-hmm. It's also worth mentioning that during the civil trial, which came after the criminal trial, a photo was found of Simpson at a Buffalo Bills game Prior to the murder, wearing the fucking shoes. Wow. He and his lawyers insisted this photo was doctored, but it wasn't. And they found originals from the film that showed him. Surprise. Wearing those. So the defense 
the stream team basically ran on the game plan of poking holes through all the prosecution's theories, and really that's all they have to do in that type of trial, you know, in a criminal trial, all you have to do as a defense is put any kind of doubt in the juror's mind. It's not their job to prove that OJ didn't do it. It's their job to say, without any reasonable doubt. Yeah, can you convict somebody without a reason? Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Ugh. So, they did this by one, claiming that the cops were racist, although a lot of them were actually friends with Simpson. Two, claiming that Mark Furman purposely planted a lot of evidence, which wasn't helped when you went up on the stand and pled the fifth on every oh. single question. Oh. To include questions regarding racial slurs he used, um, and whether or not he has ever purposely messed with evidence. And he pled the fifth? Yep. On those questions? Yep. Oh my god. It's That's because not good. on the recordings that I mentioned earlier from his IA, yeah. um, he referred to black people as the N-word, and they got a hold of those tapes. They couldn't use all those tapes because of the reference to Judge Ito's wife, but he knew that the defense had these tapes, and if he said, yes, he has said that, they he would, would perjure himself. Yeah. So it's either you perjure yourself or you plead the fifth. Don't do that shit, dude. Don't put yourself in that position in the first place. Like, fuck. So, that happened, which was horrible. Like, that was the prosecution's big witness. Because he found the glove, he found a lot of the evidence, and he fucked himself, basically. They can claim that the evidence was contaminated between his collection and his testing, and then when it came to the gloves, mind you, these are size extra larges. Okay? Yeah. Also, mind you, they're leather. They had been soaked in blood for hours. Yeah. So what happens to leather when it is wet for a long time? It, like, shrinks. It shrinks because it gets that moisture, but then it dries up. Mm-hmm. So these had both been soaked in blood, dried, frozen. Oh, God. Like, name I'm a sure thing that, that happened. that probably shrinked uh-huh. it more. Yeah. So gloves, which was supposed to be a huge power move for the prosecution... Um, they have him try on the gloves, and it was the actual pair of gloves. They didn't get, like, a non-evidentiary pair of extra-large isotoners. They should have done that. Which they should have done. No, they had him try on the actual gloves, which required him to wear rubber gloves, like, nitrile gloves. Like, evidence kind of gloves. Right. So that he didn't ruin the evidence. Yep. <laughs> so they had him try on one of the gloves, found at the scene and at his house, he wore a latex glove underneath, purposely bent his fingers, and reportedly stopped taking certain medications, resulting in a swelling of his hands. Plus, these gloves had shrunk from the natural processes that happen to leather when they get wet. Yeah. So, the glove didn't fit. Or as, it looked like it didn't fit. Yeah, as we all have mm-hmm. famously heard. <sighs> so, after all that, fears grew that race riots similar to the riots in 1992 after the Rodney King incident would erupt all across L.A. and the rest of the country of Simpson was convicted. Um, so as a result, all of Los Angeles's police officers were put on emergency 12-hour shifts. The police arranged for more than 100 officers on horseback to surround the courthouse the day that the verdict was announced. Don't get the horses involved. <laughs> and uh, Bill Clinton was briefed on security measures if rioting happened nationwide. Wild. I would say I mean, wild, but not that wild now that we've Yeah, I was going to say, I feel like that's uh, yeah. very similar to what just happened right. to us. Yeah. So, 
Um, I'm sure Trump was very well aware of the security yeah. procedures of mass writing. Mass writing. Yeah. He didn't care. No. So the jury went to convene after everybody had made their final remarks, and um, they only reviewed the inter- the testimony of the limo driver. It was found later, once you know interviews happened with those jurors, that they kind of did that just to show that they were like trying, kind of. What do you mean? Like normally, a jury goes through different points of evidence that they want to review, and it takes a long time to, especially on a case that lasted nine months. Right, you probably need reminders. They they only convened for a couple hours, which is fucked if you ask me. Yeah. At ten o seven on Tuesday, October third, in nineteen ninety five. Jury came back and acquitted Simpson on both counts of the murder. They had arrived at that verdict by 3 p.m., which was four hours of deliberation, but it postponed the announcement. Um, after the verdict was read, juror number nine, who was 44-year-old Lionel Cryer, gave Simpson a black power raised fist salute. Cool. Um, he is interviewed by Kim Goldman. So if you want to listen to that podcast and hear that interview, it's very interesting. Um, The New York Times reported that he was a former member of the Revolutionary Nationalist Black Panther Party that prosecutors had inexplicably left on the panel. He should not have been a juror, basically. Because he had that bias? Yep. So, like, people knew this, but they kind of, like, the the judges thing kind of just ignored it? I guess. Interesting. I don't know. But also, here's a question that I have. This case is still huge to this day. How yeah. do you find jurors that are non-biased? I think the, I think you have to change your standards and understand that with the amount of imp- information shared on the internet, on TV, you can't have a perfectly unbiased juror and you just have to find the best ones for Because honestly, situation. when I think of an unbiased jury, when it comes to this kind of case, I'm thinking 40-year-old women who don't watch football. Sure. They're not going to know who OJ is. They're not going to know anything about him. Or like anybody who doesn't watch sports in general. Mm-hmm. But like, you can't just pick those people because yeah. then you're creating another different form of bias. Right. And the defense and the prosecution both get to pick. Pick. Mm-hmm. So the defense is not going to pick people like that. They're going to pick people who they think are going to identify with OJ a little bit better. Right. So it's just a fucking crapshoot. Yeah. <laughs> if you ask me. I don't. I, yeah, I don't know. An estimated 100 million people worldwide watched or listened to the verdict. Which is wild. I'm surprised, like, TV didn't crash. Long-distance telephone call volume declined by 58%. Trading volume on the New York Stock Exchange decreased by 41%. Water usage decreased as people avoided using the bathrooms, and so much work stopped the verdict cost an estimated $480 million in lost productivity across the nation. Holy shit. (laughs) But Domino's and Pizza Hut were doing swells. (laughs) (laughs) So... Um, that was disappointing for everybody, um, especially the Goldman and the Brown family. So in 1996, Fred Goldman and Sharon Rufo, the parents of Rod Goldman, um, filed a suit against Simpson for wrongful death, while Brown's estate, Nicole's estate represented by her dad, brought a suit against Simpson in a survivor suit. So there were basically two civil suits brought together. Yeah. Trial took place over four months in Santa Monica, and by judge's order was not televised, which is good. Thank God. It's worth noting that the criminal trial was one of the first ever, like, widely televised trials. All of it was. And a lot of the information that was given in that, that people around the world saw, 
jurors didn't see. So what? they would even televise the portions where the jurors had to leave and the lawyers were convening with the judge about things that could or couldn't be brought up. So people around the nation knew different parts of the trial, like the Furman tapes and different oh. biases and things like that that were not oh, no. expressed before the jury. So I'm reading, that's kind of a shit that, show, if you ask me. Yeah. Um, I don't I don't know. So, the civil trial took place over four months, not televised. The Goldman family was represented by Daniel Petricelli, with Simpson represented by his lawyer, Bob Baker. Attorneys for both sides were given high marks. They were good lawyers. They are good at their job. Simpson's defense in the trial was estimated to cost $1 million and was paid for by an insurance policy on his company. Mark Furman was not called to testify, thank God. Um, Simpson was subpoenaed to testify on his own behalf, which didn't happen during the criminal trial. And then a photo published in the National Enquirer in 1993 of Simpson wearing the Bruno Molly shoes was presented at the civil trial, which was huge. Again, he denied ever owning the shoes. Uh, said the photo was doctored, but E.J. Flammer, the photographer who produced the originals, disproved that claim. Quick question. Mm-hmm. Is there a reason why he didn't go with his original lawyers? I don't know. They cost him a lot of fucking money. Oh, well. I don't know if they just didn't do civil suits or what. Like uh, a lot of lawyers don't. Maybe mix they were and like, match. I don't want to be tied up in this, bro. Like, yeah, I think I already did one. Like that was nine months of my life. Mm-hmm. I'm never getting back. Right. Other pre-1994 photos of Simpson wearing those shoes were discovered as well and brought in the civil trial. Jury in the trial awarded Brown and Simpson's children, Sydney and Justin, twelve point six million dollars from their dad as recipients of their mother's estate. And then the victims' families were awarded $33.5 million because they won the trial. So he was convicted in the civil process as killing the two. Are you serious? And acquitted in the criminal. So Why do you think that is? Why? The burden of proof in civil trials is different. Okay. Right? So in, like we talked about, in the criminal trial, it is proof beyond reasonable doubt that he did it. So it's a much higher burden of proof in a criminal trial where a civil, you know, if it's, let's say, 45% he didn't do it and 55% he did, that 55% wins. Yeah. Okay. So So it's not like a unanimous thing. Is that how all criminal trials are unanimously? Yes. Oh, fuck. Mm -hmm. That's why they take so long sometimes. Yeah, because they have to go back and forth until everyone's on the same. Yeah. Oh, that sucks. So So glad I don't have to do that. In 2006, a company called Reagan Books announced a book ghostwritten by a guy named Pablo... I can't say his last name. A book ghostwritten by a ghostwriter based on (laughs) interviews with... with, (laughs) Sorry. How do you say this? Look. I was not expecting you to say that. Oh, my God. Ronnie's fucking face right now. Let me see, let me see, let me see. What? Fucking right? Fenjeeves. That's not even right. Fenjvez. Fenvez. 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 Okay. Much better. In November of 2006, a company called Reagan Books announced a book ghostwritten by a man named Pablo Fenvez. I hope that's right. Based on interviews with O.J. Simpson titled, If I Did It, which was an account <laughs> which the publisher said was a hypothetical confession Okay. by O.J. 
everyone knows when you ask a hypothetical question uh, or say never anything hypothetically, hypothetical. it's it is never hypothetical. No. Um, on November 20th, which was like within that same month that they announced this, the parent company of Reagan Books and Fox canceled both the book and the TV interview due to a high level of public criticism. However. What? What criticism? Because like. It was such a big deal, the trial was, and he got acquitted, and then he's writing this book called If I Did It, My Hypothetical Confession. Like, and they're like, well, fuck, fuck now, this. double jeopardy, je- oh my gosh, jeopardy. That's my thing. If he legit confessed, could he be... No. That's wild. Unless they figured out some other different charges. Oh my god. I hate it. Um, trespassing? <laughs> I don't know. God damn. Later, um, the Goldman family was awarded the rights to the book... Yeah, they so they sued for rights to the book as part of the judgment against Simpson. So basically, they argued that because he was convicted in the civil trial, he should not be able to make money on the deaths that he right. caused. Right. So they got the rights to the book, and then the title of the book, the font was changed. So it said, if I did it, colon, confessions of the killer. And they oh, took shit. they took the word if, and they made it small font so just so just looks like i did it (laughs) you know what hell yeah good for that awesome also Um, they were pretty highly criticized for this but i do it's petty as fuck and it's awesome fuck him if he killed my if he killed my son he can go fuck himself i would do that shit too yep no if i did it bullshit nope so then on march 18 march 11th of 2018 fox broadcast simpson's previously unaired interview which this um book was kind of based off of yeah in a special titled oj simpson the lost confession i did it i did it (laughs) um and the decade-old interview which was supposed to air with the release of the book originally uh, by reagan books he gave a very detailed hypothesis on how the murders would have been committed if he had been involved so at first he used phrases like i would and i'd think but then as the interview went on he moved into using first-person phrasing with sentences like, I remember I grabbed the knife. No. And, quote, I don't remember, except I'm just standing there. I don't recall. I must have. And involved a supposed accomplice named, who he called, quote, Charlie. Nobody knows who this would be. Due to the change in phrasing, Gabe's comments were interpreted by many as being a form of a confession. Agreed, which stirred strong reactions in print media and the internet. He's now on Twitter. I don't recommend you check him out on Twitter because he's a fucking prick. Go fuck yourself, OJ. I'm done. <laughs> I didn't know about that interview. That was something I had no idea about. Yep. What? Yep. You, <laughs> you don't just slip into, like, this is what I did and I remember, but kind of, this is what happened. If you did it, if it's you didn't do it. That's not, again, it's not <laughs> hypothetical. What it's the like fuck? It's like he's not even trying to be hypothetical. He's like, fuck you guys, I can't get tried for this anymore, so. That is so fucked. So that is O.J. Simpson. Two things. I remember. Wine while you ask these questions. You will whine. I remember back in the day when you and I first started dating, we were talking about OJ, and you said that there was this theory about how his son did it, and his son was involved somehow. Yeah. Yeah. Do you think that was the Charlie he was referring to? Maybe. Maybe he just never admitted to it because he wants to keep him. He never came up, though, in any evidence or anything like that. You would think that with as much DNA evidence that they found, 
that they would have found yeah, but if it's an his, unknown male. But if it's his son, wouldn't it be similar blood comparison? I don't know. I have no idea. I don't know how Maybe. blood works. Because if it's like a one in a billion, I mean, there's over a billion people, and then that, that would be the other... I would have happened if they'd tested it against one of his sons. That's what I I'm think thinking. that was not even on their radar. No. I'm wondering that, like, if it's that high of odds, if uh, we have very similar blood to our relatives, obviously, like, if it would have been... Yeah. A little bit of an accurate of a match. I don't know. A little bit of an accurate of a match. Wow. <laughs> Words. So I think... Uh, that's what I think. That's who I think Charlie is, is his son. The... Which one? What was it? Which one was it? His son? I don't remember. Justin, maybe? The older one? Yeah, I don't think it would have been... Sorry. I'm so sorry for all the dog noises, guys. Um, we might it probably would have been one of his kids from his previous marriage. That's what I'm been thinking. Old enough? I don't know I didn't names. think it was the one with him and no, Nicole. I, I don't know their names. Uh, but, but anyways, so that's who I think Charlie might be. His makes sense. And of course, a father would protect his son and not yeah. just be like, "Oh, yep, he did it. I have nothing to do with it. The gloves don't fit me; they fit him." OJ did end up going to prison for um, the civil. No, so he, like a while after, ended up like robbing the store with some <laughs> friends to get some of his memorabilia. He like robbed it. He's like, "This shit's mine." No, it's all this shit. Yeah. <laughs> stole it and he went to prison <laughs> yeah i mean i knew he went to prison i guess i just yeah. thought it was for something else no it's all fucking stupid he did that in like vegas or something he robbed some memorabilia store for his shit like how pretentious do you have to be also like what memorabilia was it I don't know. It was like a signed football or something that like wasn't like, go really sign his another football yeah dude. Sick. i don't know i don't know also, the, when you mentioned about how he was, like, wanting this book or whatever, and, like, um, Ron's family bought the rights to the book because he didn't, shouldn't be allowed to ha- earn money off of it. That reminds me of, like, Gypsy Rose. How, like, she was involved or something like that with, like, a book or part of the TV show that came out with Netflix. I don't remember. She was involved with something, but her dad ended up getting the royalties from it because... You can't make money off of You the can't make money. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. So, it's just, like... Totes. That made me think of that. That's all I wanted to say. <sighs> I'm spent. That was quite the. <laughs> that was really long. That was a lot, but that's okay. That is a okay. I I had I'm fun. Ready for a snack? Yeah, let's more get wine. Snack. Um, if you want to get into contact with us, you can email us at who knew podcast six 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 at gmail dot com, or um, you can find us on Instagram who knew podcast. And then Patreon. We have a new Patreon. Uh, I guess we're not. We're doing like a new merch thing, but is it related to Patreon? No, it's I don't not know. related it's to not. Patreon. That's Sammy's wheelhouse, <laughs> not mine. Uh, yeah, we have new merch that you can find on our Instagram. It's in our link in the bio. You can click on it. It's through Bonfire. Uh, it's just a collaboration with our good friend Monique from Baby Shroomart. And um, yeah, it's inspired by a photo shoot that Macy and I did. Last fall. We have that one, and then we also have the... Oh, this. Yes. Yeah. I understand what you're referencing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was going to say, our original logo is from the photo shoot, but I forgot that her stickers are also inspired by that. Go ahead. Yeah, she asked for me to send a bunch of pictures of our photo shoot, and she picked the one where we're jumping as the inspiration of the photo, which I think is... Or the artwork, which I think is super cool. But that's all I have to say. Cool. Yeah, check it out. Other than that, I'm good. You good? I'm great. Cool. Um, who wants to say bye? Does Ron John? No, they're all fucking okay. done. Okay. Well, I'll say goodbye. <laughs> goodbye. <laughs>